This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. So I'll never let the truth back some of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. Subliminal Jihad, episode 66. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we're taking a ride back once again. It's been a little while since we've had a Crypto Zoo episode, Escapade. Yeah. And I think since uh, Mothman. I think it's, yeah, since Mothman, Mothman, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah how long ago so, was Mothman? Uh, um, Mothman it was feels uh, like, like, yeah, yeah, way too long ago, 14 episodes ago, so, you wow. know. Yeah, yeah. and so the, the, I think this was a trade that we had to make after our oh, uh, between four and a half hour yeah, uh, two-part Eagles episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, although I was, uh, I mean, we were, yeah, I guess in a way it could be considered a trade, but I feel like we always knew that we were going to do both of those episodes, so. True, exactly. Uh, it's it, just part like, of the dialectic. That was impromptu. Yeah, it's part of the dialectic. It's part of the dialectic. Uh, exactly, and, that's what the know, dialectic also, is. Uh, yeah. Um, also, well, you like know, we, eagles, yeah, we, dogs, both. Yeah, eagles, you know, dogs, one both. Free, mm. untamed. Uh, you know, one domestic. Uh, but yeah, not in this case, yeah. really. Uh, in this case, yeah. we're we. You know, it's like last episode we talked about uh, enslaved eagles, and now we're gonna talk about liberated dogmen. Yeah, wild dogs. Yeah, I truly. Yeah. Am, am, yeah. yeah. The most. Uh, yeah, the, and you know, it's like it, it's apropos because we did lose some royalty. I think uh, about a week before recording this, uh, somebody who is like a huge influence on all of our lives, and uh, you know, I, I think um, a, a true uh, dog's best friend. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a really champion of animal rights. Um, and you know his his, his legacy is going to be missed. Of course, you know, um, talking about DMX, and uh, you know, he uh, he was often fond of asking where my dogs at. And today, mm, yeah, his dogs are it's right a here. Much more complex question than uh, yeah. you might think at first. Uh, yeah. Where uh, yeah, where are my dogs at? Actually, we're we're going to try to answer that question, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, you know, in terms of yeah. <laughs> It's, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, we're, yeah, yeah we're talking about dogmen, and I yeah. have to confess that, like, of all, you're definitely the real cryptozoology expert on this podcast, but I think even among cryptids that I, like, say, Mothman, that I wasn't super well-versed on, I think I know even less about dogmen, but I'm, 
I've only been aware of them through things that you've sent over the years. Um, yeah. You know, different radio shows. It's kind of really on the bleeding edge of like coast to coast AM type stuff, even yes. like cryptid type stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah. but it, it it has a it has an impact like it it, it occupies a not it definitely has a significant footprint. space. I feel like you might have yeah <laughs> I mean, you could probably perhaps. corroborate that yeah in exploring like you know dog manor and looking it up for the first time you can see like there you know there's a reasonable uh, interest in dogmen but yeah definitely it's a more obscure topic you know it's definitely a, a niche thing it definitely doesn't have anything near the visibility of bigfoot even though i yeah. think as we'll see there is certainly some crossover with the oh, bigfoot yeah. world uh mm-hmm. in fact i think that a lot of the people who have moved to the dogman world were originally in the bigfoot world it's very interesting because the idea of dogman is of course like very ancient i think as we'll see uh very mm-hmm. timeless in a way uh but also like yeah as you said it's uh, on the bleeding edge like i first heard it's it's definitely something that's fascinated me since i first heard about it uh which i guess was around like 2015 on uh the x board on 4chan <laughs> I think that while I was looking into Dogman, or, you know, uh, while I was doing research for this, I uh, thought, well, let me see if I can find, like, the original thread where I first discovered Dogman. And the topic of the thread actually is, you know, someone asked, uh, why has there been an increase in Dogman popularity? Something like bipedal dogs would be too silly for most people to accept, but it's become popular recently. You know, and there are some people who have weighed in uh, and said, uh, because it's cool, and Bigfoot is old news. Someone made a thread a while back about dogmen should be the new thing. And I think it just kind of took off from there. Hmm. Yeah. Someone made this very cryptic reply. The more popular you are, the more people want to see you. So you hide. You choose better partners. You are being haunted by edgy occultist groups. Trust me, I know something about it. I have no Whoa. idea what that means. Uh, but being yeah, they're definitely Haunted is- by occultist groups. Yes. Hmm. Okay. And that, 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 who, sorry, who was saying that? Was that a dog? I feel like hunter? this person is saying that he is a werewolf. He's saying there are less werewolves slash SW, I guess skinwalkers slash, as you mm-hmm. named it, dogmen, because of their popularity. The more popular you are, then the more people want to see you. So you hide. You know, like, uh, trust hmm. me, I know something about it. I feel like this was supposed to be oh, a dogman okay, okay. posting. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, so uh, this is where some of my skepticism about, like, QAnon being an actual intelligence operative, you know, uh, comes from, if you've encountered that on some of our other episodes about, uh, you know, phenomenon that have, uh, you know, originated on 4chan is that people are constantly making these posts like, Dogman here. Uh, I think that our popularity <laughs> has to do with, you know, like... Uh, yeah, but, well, I mean, of course, it's easy to go on X and pretend to be a dogman. That's very low effort. And it's uh, also easy kind of for posting. a dogman to post on there, uh, you know, if he... Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't phone, know how they do with like, their paws and everything, but... Well, they, I think that they have hands. I think, you know... They, they do kind of have, like, yeah, human-like hands. digits. Yeah, they can hold, yeah. They can mm-hmm. hold on to, like, roadkill, uh, according to some witnesses. You know, so they do yeah. have... Uh, let's uh, let's demystify this, like, a little bit, because people might okay. still be a bit confused about, like, what a dogman is. A dogman yeah. basically is... The most common point of reference you'll hear, like, around people, uh, you know, from people who uh, say they've seen dogman or who are into dogman is, uh, like, the werewolf from the movie Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. Uh, You know, they look like your typical, like, nine-foot-tall, like, super wolf man monster. But the distinction 
between dogmen and werewolves is that dogmen don't transform. You know, they're more like a Bigfoot type thing where yeah. putatively they're like in, you know, in like conceptually speaking, uh, yes. obviously there's a lot of like, uh, you know, porosity between these worlds, but uh, conceptually speaking, like they're more like their own thing. You know, they don't. Yeah. Mutate. And that's that's a uh, crucial point of distinction in this world yeah. that there's no metamorphosis that takes place where a human being turns into a dog man. They're just yeah, they're that's much just more silly. like Bigfoot in that way. Uh, yeah, unlike, that's you know. ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. So we're like we're not talking about werewolves, you know? Like werewolf. Of course, I think like more people are probably aware of werewolves than dogmen. Yeah. I would say, mm-hmm. uh, but. I don't know. As, as you were telling me, actually, there's there's some confusion that could easily sneak in that Dogmen is just a totally kind of modern phenomenon, like post Sasquatch, post you know American Werewolf in London or whatever, uh, or yeah. you know just like the long lineage of European legends about uh, werewolves. Maybe we'll talk about some of the werewolf trials of the 16th century and things like that. But actually, what you were telling me is that. Actually, the sort of dogman mythos goes back even further than the werewolf mythos. Yeah, it's right? much more substantial and like it's much more common and popular historically speaking. Mm. Like the probably the biggest version of this is the idea of like the kinocephaly, you know, or the kinocephalace or the doghead mm-hmm. people. You know, this okay. is basically like a very popular, very culturally diffuse idea that there's a tribe or like a group of people out there that are dog headed. Mm-hmm. It often has to do with like the Alexander romance, like, you know, Alexander the Great, the Alexander romance is basically a term that's used for the uh, very widespread kind of canon of stories around Alexander the Great. You know, Alexander the Great is a, because his conquests were so widespread. He's a cultural hero, like to a lot of different people, you know, or someone who is admired by a lot of different cultures you know a lot of different Mm -hmm. uh people uh understand the story of alexander the great and uh he's there's a his legacy has touched a lot of different cultures and you know he traveled basically to the ends of the known world that time you know his conquests were so significant and in a lot of these stories of alexander the great something that he encounters in these far-flung lands are these people uh who are dog-headed in fact (laughs) augustine even talked about them uh, yeah, really? there's, yes, he did. Uh, he speculated about whether they were human and whether they descended from Adam or not. There's a, there's a book actually that I thought would be a good way to, uh, sort of orient us to that kind of, uh, heritage of the dog man idea because, mm-hmm. you know, this book came out in 1991. It's by David Gordon White. who's like a South Asianist primarily. He's written a lot of interesting mm-hmm. books, uh, a lot of which I'd like to, I think, uh, could have some relevance for the podcast. He wrote a book called The uh, Sinister Yogis, uh, which is really Ooh. about like kind of the uh, the devious image of the yogi in contrast to what you often uh, associate with yogis now as being like peace and love, you know, like type Ooh, I'm here people, for it. like how they really, uh, you know, historically speaking, have this more uh, ominous air to them. And uh, another book called uh, uh, Daemons Are Forever, which is basically about like contracts with demons, like transhistorically, the same way okay. that this book is about. Yeah, this book is uh, called Myths of the Dog Man, Dog Hyphen Man. Usually when you see the cryptid being talked about, you see one word, Dog Man. But, you know, it still is Myths of the Dog Man. This came out in 1991, long before, like, the modern-day renaissance of Dog Man. You know, that would have started, like, relatively recently uh, with, you know, uh, the internet really taking off, like, podcasts, like, creepypasta-type things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, like that guy said, you know, Bigfoot being old news, people looking for another like scary kind of thing in yep. the woods. I mean, a dog man is scarier than Bigfoot, probably. You know? Yeah, I mean, a Bigfoot, you know, people do have this romantic notion of Sasquatch and Bigfoot as kind of, you know, maybe yeah. they're a little shy, they could protect you, they want to be your friend, you know. I, mean, I just can't help, you know, playing that like high above the mountains, you know, yeah. like that song every time I just think <laughs> yeah, of exactly. Bigfoot. Uh, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, people you know, have uh, seen. He just wants to be left alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. he's um, like so cool, you know. Uh, but yeah, Dogman no, doesn't sound uh, as cool as that. No, Dogman's like a killing machine, you know. Bigfoot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Bigfoot, like, you know, maybe there could be like a twist on Dogman where they're like sending, like, you know, where they're peaceful and they're like sending messages. But Bigfoot, I feel like, lends itself much more to the kind of like all will be safe in woods like they call us sasquatch like you know they do not know like you know uh, yeah well is there any Um, is there anybody like like a dr stephen greer of the dogman field who is like there has never been an individual who has been killed by a dogman you know like it's never happened this is a lie you know basically uh you know who just goes hard on the idea that we should make contact uh, with dogmen and they're not that i know of there probably okay. are some people who say that dogmen could, like, you know, could be benevolent, but, like, really, you know, in terms of, like, the world of dogmen online, like, really the biggest touchstone and, like, hub for all of this is a program which is one of the few pod- other podcasts that I subscribe to, you know, if you guys want to know what I listen to among podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, it's called Dogman Encounters Radio, uh, and it's hosted <laughs> by this dude, Vic Condiff, who came out of the bigfoot world you know he has another podcast that is much longer running called uh bigfoot eyewitness radio uh and but eventually you know he started to get these dogman stories so he branched out to this other thing uh and that is like the premier dogman podcast and on that podcast you know having listened to a lot of these episodes like generally speaking dogmen are like killing machines one of the key you know oftentimes people get you know people who have encounters with them and one of the things that vic con as well from repeat you know uh, he has, like like Dimitri, he has a very uh, good radio voice, this guy, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, he'll often repeat, you know, like, well, you know, if you got away from that dog man, that means that he wanted you to get away, because if he wanted to kill you, then he could have, you know, like he's always uh, <laughs> reiterating that, and, you know, much like uh, we talked mm-hmm. about Mothman's red eyes, something that is uh, often repeated about dogmen is that if you look a dogman in the eyes, like it's just like going to freeze your soul with fear and terror. Uh, wow. And it's just like such an awful like you'll feel like primal fear when you experience this this dog man. In fact, uh, you know it maybe it would be good to kind of like read before we get into like the the dog headed people of you know uh, the ancient world. Since we're talking sure. about this anyway, it might be uh, or the ancient imagination anyway. Uh, you know, or maybe the ancient world. Who knows? Uh, it might be good to mm-hmm. read like kind of a prototypical dogman type uh encounter there is this woman another big figure in the dogman world is linda godfrey who became Mm -hmm. famous from doing her investigations into the beast of bray road which was this whole like werewolf flap that happens in Mm -hmm. i think elkhorn wisconsin i want to say yes Uh, yeah yeah Yeah, uh elkhorn yeah and that's an interesting story because elkhorn wisconsin had previously had like a lot of satanic activity like you know satanic cult activity there was a big like satanic panic in the area you know where people were saying they mm-hmm. were teenagers going out to the woods doing all these rituals and stuff 
And a couple years yeah. later, you know, this scary dogman type creature appeared, you know. And uh, yeah, Linda Godfrey tells a story about going to the, you know, police chief to like talk about these sightings because she was sort of doing research for, for a book that she eventually did write. And he like pulls out like a manila folder labeled werewolf. And there's like multiple, <laughs> like, you know, and it's just like, all right. She talks about this one guy uh, who's encountered the Michigan dogman, I guess. This guy, she gives him a pseudonym of Brad. Yeah, this has like some very classic dogman type stuff. This is like very prototypical. So he has a series of sightings. He says, I've seen this creature that resembles a werewolf on the family farm here in rural southwest Michigan. I'll start by explaining the property layout. The farm sits on 30 acres of woods, crick, and marshlands. All of my encounters have come this year, 2016, from February to about a month or so ago, early June. The first came on about uh, came on or about the eighth of February at approximately three fifty two a.m. This is not you know if this were on YouTube there'd be like creepy music in the background and like I would have a much mm-hmm. more like pleasant to listen to voice but this uh-huh. isn't YouTube. Uh, this is a little jihad, <laughs> so this is what you're getting. Uh, a heavy winter storm was hitting the area with some nasty weather. I was up early to get a jump on the snow shoveling, so the driveway was accessible for the propane delivery guy later that morning. As I was about halfway down the driveway, I heard a loud splash in the creek to the south about 25 yards away. Thinking it was a deer or two, I stopped shoveling and scanned the creek and wood line for any movement. As I scanned the creek, I came to the wood line. You know, he's saying creek, but he spells it creek, so I'm just reading it phonetically. Okay, right, uh, I came I to the wood line and saw, spin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, saw this pair of, well, you know, uh, saw this pair of, anyway, so he scanned the creek and the wood line, and he saw this pair of yellow amber eyes, about seven and a half to eight feet tall, standing right next to a huge oak tree. It took off with a super burst of speed to the west, then it leapt into the air, and all I heard for the next few seconds was the treetops clanging against one another. It was like it rode the treetops. I stood there for a few minutes, questioning my sanitary. For the six to seven seconds I saw this creature, it stood on two legs that it looked like a dog's hind legs. It had a big wolf-like head with a snout and ears that resembled that of a German shepherd and those eyes of yellow slash amber in color. Uh, so he goes on and says, The second sighting came on or about March 24th at approximately three, uh, sorry, 2.38 p.m., I had decided mm-hmm. to walk up the creek and clear brush. I, w- I always carry a firearm with me on these occasions. I had gotten about 450 yards up the creek that flows through the entire acreage of the property. It was strange to me how completely quiet, or as I say, dead, the woods were. This is also like a very classic thing. You know, if Dogman's around, like the woods are silent because all the animals are scared. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they're like off. You know, the birds are too scared to be around. I always jump something up, uh, whether it's a deer or a turkey or ducks that are always there. I didn't even hear any birds, which was really strange. The spooky phenomenon of utter silence enveloping... This is uh, Linda Godfrey talking. The spooky Mm -hmm. phenomenon of utter silence enveloping the area of anomalous events is known as the Oz factor and is quite common in creature encounters. Uh, You know, this wizard of Oz, blah, blah. But anyway, so Mm -hmm. Brad goes on. Uh, I rounded a bend in the creek, went up ahead about 55 yards, was what looked to be the black, the back of a black bear that was digging into the bank of the creek. As I was setting my firearm down on one of the little islands in the creek, I snapped a branch and it stopped completely what it was doing. I froze and watched as this thing stood up on two legs and started to turn around towards me. It stood eight feet tall and had a huge wolf-like head, snout and ears of a dog, and all black fur. In the first encounter, the creature's fur was gray in color with some white. This one was all black. It kept glancing over to the east and back towards me. It had not yet seen me. It put its snout into the air and looked as if it was sniffing in the wind. 
I'm completely freaking out at this point and reach to pick up my firearm to get out of the area quickly when there was a splash up the creek. I looked up, and now this thing was on all four legs. It stood five to five and a half feet tall. At this point, I don't want to run out of fear that it will give chase, so I stay frozen. It looked at me and snarled, and I thought it was sizing me up, and then all of a sudden it looked to the east, back at me one more time, and then took two giant leaps toward the east and onto the bank of the creek. That's about a 25-foot distance. Then it jumped towards the treetops and disappeared to the east. I stood there in total disbelief. I got home, my mind just kept racing. So I decided to confide to my father about what I had seen, and he looked at me as if I were an alien. Said I was crazy and I should get my head checked out. I know what I saw, exclamation point. And this is, uh, this is his uh, third and final uh, encounter. So he keeps seeing this dogman, I guess. My dad and I were having a fire down by the creek, and we were getting low on wood. He asked if I could go get more wood for the fire from behind the pole barn. I hesitated and said in a few minutes. I was afraid of those woods, which is something I thought I would never say. That's another common thing where, like, the, oh, the woods will never be the same for me again after I encountered them. Oh, yeah, yeah. After about 10 minutes, I start to make my way back towards the pole barn. It's just about dark, and I keep hearing this rustling and a lower growl like dogs are playing. And when I reach the back of the pole barn, it stops. I light a cigarette and look out into the woods, which are 10 yards away. Again, the woods had gone completely silent. It was eerie. Then there was a sound like a zipper being zipped up. It was about 30 yards to the south. I waited for a minute and decided to look out to where I heard the sound. As I glanced to my right, I saw something move. It was just about completely dark, and there was a stench in the air that was absolutely putrid. It smelled of rotten guts and urine. I figured it was a rotten carcass of a dead animal. And then I was shining my flashlight, uh, and a deep guttural growl, like a raccoon would make, came from the area I had heard uh, the rustling sound. So I shone my light over towards the sound, and I saw eyes about five and a half feet off the ground. The eyes were red in color and were very shiny. The thing I didn't, uh, the thing I saw didn't have paws in the front. They were long arms and had hands with claws. So there you go. Oh they God. could use a phone. Oh my God. I yeah. didn't, I, it really didn't freak me out, uh, as a lot of critters have red eyes when exposed to the light. Then this thing, wait, well, he saw that it had hands hmm. and claws. So I think it should have been, but anyway, uh, then this thing stood up on two legs. This thing was really tall, eight to eight and a half feet. And it growled again and literally turned around and walked away to the south. I thought I had crapped myself. I came back home. My dad asked, where's the wood? I said I didn't feel well and was going to bed. This is kind of like a comedy of errors. The fact that his dad was right there and, like, you know, this document keeps showing up to him and his dad. Uh, but uh, anyway, so he went out the next day uh, to look around the area. He heard the noise. I found only a deer skin. The rest of the deer was gone, including the head. Also, two neighbors of mine have heard very eerie howls coming from my family's woods, saying they only come at dusk. They have been in the area for 50-plus years and said they have never heard a sound like the one they heard. And one more thing. I set apples out for the deer every week, and I noticed the other day that all the apples were gone and a rock was in every place where there was an apple. I have a trail cam on the area as I write this. I also found some tracks that look like a huge wolf's. There used to be deer around here all the time. Had a herd of 50 or so. Now you're lucky to see one or two. So they disappeared. Been really strange around here for the past couple of years, and I don't know what to think about it. And all three of my encounters, the thing I saw reminded me of a werewolf. I no longer go near the woods. I was told by a family member that a lot of the wood acreage is Indian burial grounds. I don't share this with very many people oh, at all in fear go. of getting laughed at or called crazy. Thank you for contacting me back and hope I gave enough detail on my encounters. So, wow. uh, okay. yeah, that's, so like that's a relatively typical... recent encounter, right? Yes. Recent, like 2016. Uh, he said that he had okay. this. Yeah. So they have technology to put trail cams up and surveil the area. 
and all those things. I guess we don't know if that guy ever, you know, I, I'm sure we would have heard about it if he caught a dog man on camera. But yes. then we're back in the liminal category of of Bigfoot and Sasquatch where, you know, maybe what we're dealing with is not entirely uh, corporeal and terrestrial. I mean, as, there's as no way. Bigfoot is something where it's like, all right, I mean... There have, like, been big kind of ape things like Gigantopithecus or whatever, you know. It's a little bit more tenable. I mean, we kind of threw out the, like, biological ape theory. At least I'm, like, not really partial to that. I feel like for this, it makes no sense to say that this is just, like, some kind of species of animal that's out there. And, like, no one has noticed it. And it's not, you know. Yeah, I was watching some documentary on the Beast of Bray Road. And he was, like, you know, uh, there was some guy who... Uh, they interviewed and he was like, people say it's supernatural. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, everything that it does, it can be explained scientifically. Like there's, it just doesn't make any sense. There's like a bipedal wolf person. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah. But, and it, it doesn't even sound, uh, it, it doesn't even wild. sound like, uh, like, like Bigfoot at least is maybe possessed with a kind of sentience or like is a highly intelligent primate that can kind of like plan to like not like consciously be like oh i need to get away from these uh humans they're dangerous whereas Dogman sounds more like a beast who well he is, is a not beast, but like, he's like a raptor you know he's like the raptor yeah. of jurassic park you know they're uh-huh. smart uh yeah like they okay. but it seems like clever you, you know? yeah maybe clever in like an, a more what we would consider an animalistic kind of intelligence where it's not right like i don't know like they're not like Dogman doesn't telepathically talk to you right <laughs> No, exactly. Like, Dogman doesn't have that element that you see in Bigfoot. Yeah, he just growls Mm -hmm. and stares at you with his horrifying eyes that make you feel like prey uh, and, like, scream to something primal in the back of your brain. uh, And he also, it should be mentioned, he has kind of something in common with another more modern cryptid, Mothman, where his modus operandi seems to be to just like pop out in like rural places and like scare the shit out of you but Mm -hmm. at the same time like like mothman didn't telepathically speak to anybody right he would just like shriek and like fly around and stuff yes yeah so you know it's like there's a kind of trollish aspect but also it's interesting i mean there are like apocryphal dogman stories though of course it's hard to tell on youtube like who's larping and who is claiming to actually have seen a dogman but it does seem that like in terms of the ones that maybe uh were in like the myths of the dogman book and in i think even well missing four one one's more ambiguous but it kind of seems like or in the wisconsin dogman story the beast of bray road that nobody was killed directly by a dog killed yeah the or Beast even of like Road basically just jumps hurt. out in front of your car and yeah it's very like a, a similar thing where like you know when mothman chased the car there are some stories mm-hmm. like that where like you know dogman is like running or the beast of bray road or whatever is like running right alongside the car you know but he never like mm-hmm. gets anybody uh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which is very interesting that that's an interesting uh, data point right there you know yeah that, that he never has gotten like, anybody yeah we were both yeah, despite I being to, seen as like uh, this vicious terrifying monster that yeah. everyone's afraid of he doesn't actually seem to kill people though I, I found some other ones which again might just be like total larps about like uh dog man murdered my entire family in west virginia in the 1960s <laughs> well you yeah know? there's like, a the, famous story of the the beast of the land between the lakes uh mm-hmm. or beast of the lbl for short 
And that's a story like that where it killed an entire family, um, something like that, you know, like they were uh, all camping. And yeah, I'm trying to see if I can find like the actual thing like uh, but yeah, it was something well, uh, like you also. Know, I I family, mean, you know? I, yeah. I I do. I'm like, yeah, we're, you know, just like we threw out biological ape theory, just but <laughs> I don't know the descriptions that everybody has, and maybe you can help debunk this outright. But it sounds like okay. Besides the fact that, well, I don't know that that it runs on two feet. It does sound like in a lot of cases it could be a bear, even in the case where it like kills a whole family. Like that's absolutely something a bear could do. Bears, could, I mean, yeah. they can run fast on all four legs, but they can also stand up upright. They can have, like, kind of red glowing eyes. Like, especially, I don't know, like, maybe like a like a more emaciated bear, like a hungry bear. You could see having a little more of, like, a, a, a human-style physique than, like, a big, fat, fluffy bear if they're standing up on their hind legs and it's yeah, dark. Yeah, I mean, I guess it like, just kind of depends. Like, I don't think, like, a, a black bear could would, would maul an entire family usually. They're like kind of, you know, they're much more timid than that. So it really depends what kind of bears are around. You know, if you have like a grizzly bear or a Kodiak bear, I could see them doing that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and these are mostly in northern latitudes close to Canada. Where I'm like, I've heard dogman encounter stories where I was pretty sure that the person saw a raccoon, you know, like, so it's not <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. and raccoons kind of do have those like hands and stuff, you know, so they do. Uh, they do. Definitely there's stuff like that. But, you know, I will say, like, to uh, the credit of some of these people, some of them do sound very sincere and you can kind of hear like the trauma in their voices from what they've seen. Maybe they're all just very good mm -hmm. actors, but you know, it's a level of sociopathy. Like that's not really applied to anything useful to like go anonymously on like a dog man podcast and just like yeah. do this performance about how you were traumatized by your dog man encounter. You know, a lot of the time Vic, Vic Cundiff of dog man encounters have to be like, uh, Hey, like we're going to take a break, you know, it's all right. Like, uh, you know, and have to like, you know, pause the podcast, to, like comfort yeah, yeah. whoever the eyewitness is, uh, cause mm -hmm. the reliving the dog man memory is simply too traumatic. So yeah, uh, yeah. there are some, you know, yeah. there's definitely a lot of people who are lying, uh, or have seen things or, you know, there's stories where people just didn't see anything and they're just like, yeah. I felt the dog man there. You know, my boyfriend okay. brought me out <laughs> to hunt dog men and like, I, I get the dog man was right beyond the tree line. Like, you know, something uh -huh. like that. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. it's like your Felt's boyfriend psyops you like, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to make you think he was a cool dog man hunter. Like, uh, -huh, uh yeah. but it is like an interesting cultural phenomenon, the way that this has like emerged like out of the sort of Bigfoot milieu uh, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. taken on like a well, more sinister spin, uh, maybe because there's sure. a, a, a desire for it, a, a, an audience for it. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking about now maybe like the timeline of Dogmen uh, in relation to that, because was there kind of like obviously there are stories throughout antiquity and folk cultures all around the world that you know reference dogmen but was there a bit of like a, a dogman gap where in say like american society like say in the first half of the 20th century because there were like bigfoot stories going back to like the 19th century and the early 20th was there kind of a dogman gap and then at a certain point maybe in the 70s or the 80s which is kind of in the you know in the wake of the bigfoot phenomenon being popular then dogman starts to i mean like the beast of bray road the wisconsin and michigan dogman sightings were like in the 80s and early 90s right 
Yeah, there does seem to be a bit, and but even then, there's like, the whole modern dogman phenomenon. I would say is like actually a little bit separate from that. You know, they were kind of less popular uh, in the menagerie of cryptids. You know, they were all always around way back then. But if you were into cryptozoology, you're more likely to hear about Bigfoot or Mothman. You know, uh, Mokelly and Bembe. You know, like um, uh, than those ones per se. Okay. Uh, well, because I, I this all leads to one question that's bouncing around in my head: Could the dogmen be chimeras? Yeah, that actually is one of the biggest theories about dogmen: is that they're like uh, laboratory-made like laboratory. chimeras. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. like and one then of maybe the... released to like psyop people or something. I don't know. Yeah, and that's one of the most interesting things to uh, about dogmen to me is like the uh, like the heavier aspect of you know we talked about this a little bit in the Bigfoot episode, like the idea of a cover up and stuff like that. And I feel like that type of thing, the dogmen stories have a more sinister air to them in general. So maybe you get a little bit more of definitely it's very often implied that there is some kind of cover-up happening of the dogmen both you know as we kind of talked about with what would be necessary for bigfoot to be hidden it's definitely a conspiracy mm -hmm. by the dogmen themselves that do have a certain intelligence and want to hide their own existence you know some people mm -hmm. even report that they got like you know they don't get telepathic communication but they get like a primal message and sometimes what they get is like if you tell anyone about this like i'll kill you you know like uh <laughs> and stuff like that you know like uh, so they've been like so, hypnotized like candy jones to like self-destruct if they uh get found out or something or you know just like yeah. intimidated just by avoid maybe. All costs. yeah well you know there's there's lots of interesting factors around this stuff it's very interesting to think about like epistemically because you know on one hand like there's just like the fear of ridicule which i feel like is even higher than bigfoot to say that you saw yeah a werewolf or a dog man it's very different and i think that maybe that has to do with the gap you know and i mean what how different is a dog man from a bear you know obviously it's different because they could like jump like you know five feet or whatever uh and they run super fast yeah. and, like they're horrifying chimeras but i feel like in the 19th it's century like this dog man story if you had a dog man or a werewolf story it would either be like a classical medieval werewolf story which would be much more like a vampire or a witch story involving yeah. satanism uh yeah. or you know yeah. the occult in some way much more than like you know i saw a wild man type story uh yeah or, yeah which is know, another interesting would... angle to it is that if there were a lot of teenagers doing satanic rituals as we know they were they all were across the country in the 1980s mm -hmm. did some of them you know purposely or inadvertently summon some kind of djinn that manifested as a dog man and then I mean, I don't know. Could you even look at, like, even Baphomet kind of has, like, I know it's a goat, but if you think about it, has, like, certain dogmanish uh, character, or, you know, I don't think it would be impossible if you saw, like, you know, I mean, whatever. Like, like Jin and well, uh, Satan can take whatever goat, form they want. There also is a you know? goat man. That might be a separate episode, but oh. there also is a goat oh, man. Interesting. Uh, interesting. That, people have, uh, that people have seen. Yeah, I think Linda hmm. Godfrey has also explored that actually she wrote about this a little bit she wrote uh, many people have for the years suggested the possibility that unknown upright canines and perhaps also the very large unexplained quadrupeds we will get to next are the result of some superseer government genetic program i'm sure there are plenty of such programs as the field of genetics moves into the bioengineering aspect of every known type of device and natural resource to open vast new opportunities for civil defense and offense medical treatments and more my first thought is the two sleek hounds observed by you know who uh, what she's talking about uh, 
uh, were not bipedal as far as gentlemen could tell, so they don't help solve the conundrum of upright canines. We must then ask what possible advantage could be found in the expensive and complex process of cloning dogs and training them to move at an unnatural pace in complete synchronization. So she's just talking about these uh, various uh, possibilities. You know, maybe they have on-off switches or they're genetically programmed somehow, but... Yeah, there's like many different uh, angles to this. There's a couple different goat men, uh, one in Maryland. Oh, yeah. wow, uh, yeah. Fort Detrick. Yeah, one in Roswell, actually. Really? There's yeah. a goat man in Roswell? Mm-hmm, yes. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's but, uh, unsettling. Yeah, but I actually think, you know, in talking about like its sort of modern resurgence and whether there's a gap uh, and in what respect there might be, uh, it's interesting to talk about like kind of the backgrounds. Uh, I think that's some of what uh, Gordon uh, White, or sorry, David Gordon White, uh, writes in his uh, book is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, he mm-hmm. has uh, a sort of discussion of, of this. He, you know, is talking about the idea of like hordes, which is often kind of like uh, what dogmen are associated with. You know, they're always out there. They're always like uh, in the classical sense, dog-headed people are like barbarians, basically. In fact, like okay. the idea of cannibals, like uh, that's like a, a oh, yeah. sort of distortion of carib. But, but the reason why Columbus, when he first heard carib, he thought he heard canib is because of the association with uh, canis, you know, with uh, dogs. Dogs, the dogs are canis majoris. Yes, uh, right. Sirius actually comes up here a little bit, but... uh, (laughs) Nice, You know, so uh, he's talking about... So he says, uh, conquering the forces of chaos involves channeling its waters, sweeping out its drifting sands, cutting back its trees, and walling out its savage minions. The nomadic swarming races... Uh, share the lot of those members within society who turn away from the established order. The heretics, the choosers of an ideology that is not the ideology, marginals, members of an underground, traitors, and madmen. In order to maintain its claims exclusivity in the realm of ideology, the center must pursue and punish those outsiders who dwell within its borders. Until recently, death or exile were the classic punishments for crimes against society. In recent times, incarceration, walling outsiders inside a controlled environment outside the social sphere, has become the norm. Uh, So this is interesting. The ambiguous connection between walling in and fencing out has a mytho-historical precedent, one that we will examine in Chapter 3 of the study. We might not read that part, but anyway. uh, This was the wall built by Alexander the Great between the two impassable mountain ranges that enclose, within a mountain prison outside the Hellenistic world, the impure races of Central Asia. Here we move from the imprisonment of recalcitrant individuals within society to the effective imprisonment or forced exiles uh, of entire ethnic groups. An important parallel to this may be found in communities who perceive the reigning order as evil and choose to exile themselves as a means to lead to a meaningful existence. In the ideology of the center, such heretics are of the same ilk as exiled or incarcerated criminals or threatening foreign nations. It is this sort of reduction that makes the forces of chaos, impurity, marginality, criminality, and foreignness all synonymous. Walling out becomes the common solution to all forms of swarming, both from within and from without. Uh, so this is where some of the dog stuff starts to come in. The, mm-hmm. And I think this, you know, the connection between like the Indian burial grounds and all those sorts of stuff. Oh, the yeah. permeable wall through which one can enter and exit the home. You know, this book was written in the 90s, so it's very, like, steeped in the liminality stuff that was super popular back then and really still is. But anyway, uh, the permeable wall through which one can enter and exit the home is the door, which is marked by the threshold. In a temple, the profanum is the space before the sanctum itself. 
In a profane dwelling, this function is filled by the threshold and the porch. Now it suffices to reflect for but a moment to recognize that the threshold of the house is a universally associated with one particular creature whose relationship with humans has always located it on the boundary between wildness and domesticity. We are, of course, referring to the dog. That creature with which mankind has enjoyed one of its most long-standing mutualist symbiotic relationships. This cohabitation with a great and changing variety of the Canidae, dating from Neolithic times, has no doubt played a significant role in the rise of Homo sapiens to dominance over our planet, in the human transformation of environment into world. We humans are, in fact, chauvinistic when we speak of the beginning of the relationship as the domestication of the dog, since in all probability it was the dog that originally took the initiative, insinuating itself into the human pursuit of game and accepting the scraps that were its due once the hunt was successfully concluded. The dog has remained with us ever since, exchanging its skills in hunting, herding, and protecting the home for food, shelter, and human companionship. We cannot overestimate the importance of this relationship to the, quote, humanization of the human species. Over the past 10 to 12,000 years, as we have completed our biological evolution through development of culture, an evolution parallel to that of the child in its formative years when prenatal biological development is completed through acculturation, all right, uh, we humans have grown up with dogs <laughs> at our sides. It is by virtue of dog share in human evolution that our stories and histories, our activities and rituals, our dreams and waking interpretations of them are so widely, quote-unquote, peopled by dogs, even today. Although Fifi and Fido are pale copies of their powerful ancestors, Kerberos and Samara, or Sarama, mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, but... Yeah, these somewhat inbred, yeah. Yeah, Cerberus, yeah. Uh, these somewhat inbred descendants are eminently present to the popular human culture. There is no creature who appears in human roles as often as a dog. We find dogs everywhere, from advertising and cartoons in which different breeds and varieties of dogs play the roles of different social classes and human personality types, to theological writings in which the relationship between man and God is compared to that between a dog and its human master. Indeed, according to a great number of myths, especially from Central Asia, the first creatures that God placed on the earth were man and dog. Uh, wow. So, you know, he goes on to talk about how often we see dog, like, in our, uh, you know, language. One only need think of the scholar who, hounded by deadlines, works doggedly, poring over dog-eared manuscripts so as to avoid the sinosure of his peers, the sons of bitches. When the pressure <laughs> is too great, he may end up in the doghouse and only pull himself wow. out with the hair of the dog that bit him. Uh, wow. So, you know, dogs are uh, yeah, everywhere in our culture. No, it's true. It's uh, permeative. And also the fact that in antiquity, the North Star was Sirius, the dog star, Canis Majoris. Is, yes. Uh, uh, of course, not insignificant. The North Star itself was a dog, uh, basically, symbolically. Yeah, also, and I, that's something that I, I didn't actually see. is, yeah, something that came up in this book is something like, you know, that's actually oddly trans historical, like they're, uh, or sorry, transcultural. Uh, the mm -hmm. like association of Sirius with dogs, which was odd to me. I don't necessarily know why that would be the case, but even you know, of course, uh, he talks about Sirius uh, 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 in sort of uh, Western Hellenistic cultures uh, and in Egypt. But even in China, yeah, yeah well, they I was also thinking about Sirius. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. also thinking about Egypt a lot because obviously Anubis, perhaps maybe yeah. one of the most mm -hmm. famous, uh, uh, you know, technically a, a dog god, but like basically, yeah. physically speaking, is basically kind of a dog man. Yeah, he's a dog man, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he's a dog. Uh, right. This guy, uh, David Gordon White, writes uh, of China. You know, he actually goes through a lot of different uh, cultural contexts in this book, you know, from uh, sort of West, the quote unquote West, to Central Asia, to uh, China uh, towards the end. And he says that the star Sirius, the dog star of Western tradition, is called the celestial wolf in China. A common Chinese theme describes three stars in Canis Major and one star from Argo as an arrow pointed at the celestial wolf. There is no direct evidence to link this case of shooting the wolf of heaven with the shooting of various mythic or sacrificial dogs. The hound and wolf of heaven are brought together, however, in their function. Both guard the celestial palace of Shang-Ti, the constellation of Ursa Major, itself a land of the heroic dead in ancient Chinese thought. Uh, you know, this, I guess, makes sense because mm-hmm. dogs are, you know, guardians. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, in a uh, later source, I guess, uh, the Chow Hun, again, I don't know anything about uh, classical Chinese culture at all, so, uh, or medieval <laughs> or anything, but, uh, so I don't know what that is. But this source says, a wolf with piercing eyes comes and goes slowly uh, and throws men into the air and plays ball with them. He tosses them into a deep abyss in obedience to his lord, and then he may go to sleep. Yeah. Wow, it's pretty yeah. serious, but... Um, uh, serious, hmm, yeah. Okay. It's uh, yeah, it is serious. serious yeah. Fact, yeah, yeah, very serious. Um, yeah, and of course, yeah. you know, yeah, Cerberus, uh, you know, like the three-headed dog that guards like yeah, the gates guards, of Hades. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're like know, they're guarding heaven beings. and hell. They're liminal beings because mm-hmm. they're always guarding these thresholds. White in this book uh, does talk uh, a lot about Sirius. He has like two sections, you know, and he does definitely talk. He mentions Anubis and and St. Christopher as well, who is like uh, the dog-headed saint in Christianity. He was, I guess, a mm. member of those dog-headed races that you always hear about, you know, in these like uh, early, early ethnographies, you know, the, the type that Augustine was writing about, you know, saying like, are they redeemable? St. Christopher would be like the yes answer to that, where in these uh, hagiographical accounts mostly like from Mm -hmm. uh, eastern christianity there's one guy who was a dog man but he became good and he's a saint but he still is a dog man uh saint christopher yeah wow Mm -hmm. yeah he was originally a uh cynocephalic cannibal named reprobus whoa and he was converted by bartholomew who changes his name to christian uh after defeating the man eaters he goes on with the apostles of the lands of the parthians so wow. yeah, I, I did not know saint christopher evolved. was a like a raving cannibal who got converted yes he was he was yeah a dog a dog-headed man actually. wow a dog-headed According man and then you know his yeah. and then his his dog head remained after he became yeah, he a re- saint mm-hmm. uh, or, yes, or you know were converted Okay, yeah, because yes. I just remembered him, you know, as a Catholic, as he's like the patron saint of, of travelers. So even that, like going into unknown territory and stuff like that, you know, it's like St. Christopher is your, your dogman companion saint, basically, I, I guess, you know, if we were to integrate all that. Yeah, no, I'm looking at that. Yeah, in Eastern icons, yeah, he. I'm looking at like an, a Byzantine icon of him with a dog head. <laughs> yeah. Dog I had man. no idea. Wow. Um mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, that was his original name. Like, you know, which you're, the meaning of it you can uh kind of infer. And but yeah. Kind actually, of a, I guess he was from Libya or uh, uh, Cyrenaica, I guess is it? Yeah, Cyrenaica. Or Cyrenaica. Yeah, you know, uh, which is modern uh, day right. Libya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the west of Egypt, that makes sense. He was, yeah, he was a cannibal. I guess they were all cannibals. They're all man-eaters. Yeah, that's, yeah, often these dog-headed people, I think that's kind of why Columbus made that conflation of, like, Carib into Conib, 
uh, because, you know, the idea that these dog-headed people, yeah, obviously they're eating men because dogs are, you know, uh, wolves or, or predators. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, mm-hmm. our, the last episode that we recorded was the uh, the one about uh, QAnon, our, our second QAnon episode. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a part in that, I remember where Ron Watkins was talking about, like, I think, uh, you know, my dad should just go full Diogenes, which, uh, like, <laughs> of course, is like the cynic, you know, and the reason why he was called Diogenes the cynic oh, yeah. was because of his behavior being dog-like, you know, he, like, would wear a barrel mm-hmm. and, like, lie around in the street and stuff, uh, you know, so... Uh, so he's really more of, like, a canic, uh, a little bit, like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, the, the mm. yeah, the, the root is the same, yeah. Uh, Kunos, oh, uh, Gulan. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. There's actually a part of this, I'm trying to find it now, where he goes into, yeah, uh, he talks about kind of the distinction, uh, that we've been, uh, talking about. Yeah, so he says, uh, Thanks in part to Hollywood, wolfmanism is more immediate to our popular mythology than cynanthropy or uh, cynocephaly. Dogmen, mm-hmm. however, have historically enjoyed a much richer and more varied mythology than their lycanthropic uh, cousins. No doubt as a result of the ambiguity of the dog itself as much uh, as of cultural and historical trends. Just as the dog dwells in the boundary between domestication and savagery, so foreign or barbarian races have inhabited a space in the human imagination between the exotic and therefore fascinating and the horrifying animal freedom is as fascinating as animal savagery is terrifying and the ethne of ancient and medieval mythology geography and historiography were as much animal races as they were human uh Mm. he says in the final analysis thinking with animals leads us to a series of five categories that shade from wildness into humanity these are one the wolf or wild dog which is entirely savage two the domesticated dog which dwells on the threshold between the two three the wolf man who oscillates between humanity and animal savagery. He is human mm-hmm. in as much as he was born into a given society, but animal in that he has woefully rejected social norms. Four, the dog man, a hybrid creature, while more human than the domesticated dog, is non-human in the sense that he belongs to an other or foreign race, yet human in his social behavior. And five, civilized or political man, who was fully human in his physiology and sociability. So it's mm-hmm. interesting how well those categories hold up with like the modern idea of the cryptid dog man. Now I don't, yeah. I think like, you know, in a way werewolves maybe in the Hollywood sense are closer to humanity because like they do become fully human at times, but dog yeah. men, the idea that they are a separate race, like that really is still the core distinction between these two things. You know, they like, uh, they're well, also, separate, I mean, he, you know? he mentions like a, the, a willful rejection of social norms, uh, which is kind of much more of a, it sounds like a conscious choice to like embrace animal savagery as opposed to, I think Hollywood's conception is often, it's like a horrible thing that like happens to you. I, I'm just thinking of like teen, yeah, that's you different. know, like, uh, yeah. like I'm turning into a werewolf. No, it's like a puberty metaphor for and like way you know mm-hmm. yeah. um and like it's not something that like you decide i want to be a werewolf or something like that like it's weird because like what i actually don't know kind of what he's uh getting at there like i get the oscillating between humanity and animal savagery but i always thought being a werewolf is something either i don't know it's like you either get bitten by a werewolf and then you become one or you're That's like born true. as one I mean, well, in the, like, it's not like in a the choice uh, Chaney, the wolf man it's interesting because yeah, well, you know, uh, when you're the hero of a story, uh, I mean, the duality comes from having a good person who's like a werewolf against his will, you know, in a Dr. Yeah. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type way. You know, that's a compelling yeah. idea. But like classically speaking, you know, we talked about 
uh, you know, the medieval idea of the werewolf, which is, like, very similar to the idea of a witch, or even the idea of the skinwalker, yeah. you know? The medieval uh-huh. idea of the werewolf is similar to the idea of the skinwalker, where the person has, like, a pelt that they put on and that allows them to transform mm. into the wolf. They're basically sorcerers that are doing this yeah. on purpose, you know, and they're bad yeah. people. Like, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh-huh. I think before we started recording, uh, there's, like, a the guy who wrote the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers uh, wrote a lot of books also about folklore. And one of the books that he wrote is called The Book of Werewolves. And in that book, uh, you know, he talks a lot about werewolf mythology or the idea of wolf man and stuff, uh, you know, berserkers uh, having wolf-like aspects, uh, you know, in Scandinavian uh, culture, you know, the, the sort of mm-hmm. uh, wild berserker who would go into the, the Hamas or whatever it's called, the, uh, the sort of battle rage, and they would do superhuman feats uh, while wearing these bear or wolf skins. Uh, and, mm-hmm. But he also has a whole chapter devoted to Gilles de Rey because uh, in the same way that mm-hmm. it was a witch trial, there actually is very similar to uh, a werewolf trial. The most yeah. famous one is the guy uh, Peter Stubb or Peter Stump. He has a bunch of different names. Uh, he's known as the werewolf of Bedburg, but he is like, you know, okay. your classical medieval werewolf and a werewolf like a folk werewolf in like a medieval context is very similar to like even a vampire. You know, I remember there's one like Arab story of like a woman who became a werewolf because she didn't observe the like proper mourning period after her husband died and so she turned Mm -hmm. into a werewolf but basically what she would do was kind of vampire like you know she would go into people's rooms at night and like suck their blood you know so there's a a lot of similarity here so i guess uh, you know a vampire in a way like turn you know i don't know where this came into the the lore but they turn into a bat so they even have the same function of like turning into sort of an animal you know, yeah. in this very weird liminal way. Um, or into a so, wolf yeah. a lot of the time. Vampires can transform into wolves. I mean, oh, they the can. Oh, Dracula, there's a lot of association between uh, Dracula and wolves. You know, wolves are... I mean, wolves and dogs are different. Like, you know, there's a whole idea of the domestication and everything. But, of course, wolves and dogs in a way aren't different because dogs are the descendant of some kind of wolf uh, somewhere yeah. at some point, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, they still have that wolfliness in them. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's funny to look at, like, some of these little dogs that we have now, like, uh, you know, and think, like, this is a descendant of, like, a fierce wolf, you know, but they still kind of have, <laughs> Oh, I know, uh, yeah. That attitude, Well, you know? the first uh, great eugenics program, I think, was, like, all the dogs that we have today. Uh, they're all chimeras, was, in yeah. a sense. Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah. Well, they're artificial uh, evolution, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, Peter Stube claimed that, you know, he was stretching the rack, and he claimed that he uh, practiced black magic since he was 12, uh, and he got a magical mm-hmm. belt from the devil, uh, uh-huh. which let him turn into a greedy, devouring wolf. There's also the the other famous one from history, I think, is the Beast of Gerudan, I think it's called. Uh, uh-huh. Beast of uh, Gevaudan, which is, like, this giant wolf that, like, stalked the south-central France uh, in the 18th century for, like, three years yeah. and just, like, terrorized people. And no one knew what it was, and eventually it was killed. I think that they actually used, like, a silver implement to kill it, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm, okay. So, yeah, we got the whole silver thing going on. Yeah, I think that's... Where, has that always been associated? When from. when did that come in as, like, oh, that's how you kill a werewolf, is with silver? I think it's from this story, the idea okay. of using silver, like, from this event. Like, there was one guy who used silver bullets or something on the Beast of uh, Gévaudan, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, there was one guy, 
uh, Chastel, I guess, who was hunting it. I didn't really look into this too much. It just came to my mind as, like, a famous kind of werewolf thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and this, you know, no one actually saw it, like, transform or whatever. But, you know, uh, there was one guy who said he's silver bullets. I probably popularized it, but I don't know if that existed before uh, as an idea that silver would, would hurt werewolves. I guess yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, according also... to Wikipedia, it does date back to that event where uh, Jean Chastel, who killed it, he purportedly used a gun loaded with silver bullets. But that okay. idea is derived from a distorted detail from a novel uh, in 1946 where the French writer imagines the beast was shot thanks to the fictitious medals of the Virgin Mary worn by Jean Chastel in his hat and then melted down to make bullets. So this is kind oh, of like a, So they were real it's really more the holy relic aspect. That's than the idea in the novel. Silver. And that's the idea in the novel. Okay. Although that guy might have claimed to use silver bullets, but yeah, I think that that really is the the main source of that cuz it was like a media blitz for the, for the time, you know, in the 18th century it was a big thing uh in the media, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, that's yeah. like uh, uh, like uh, it was a popular story. It was kind of a a craze or a panic. Uh I noticed there was a funny comment. I think it was in uh, what's her name's book about the Beast of Bray Road, where she commented that like people started going out to Bray Road with like often with like automatic weapons, mm-hmm. hoping to hunt and kill a dogman, and they caught one guy who was there with like a nine millimeter pistol and a bunch of bullets, and I guess the uh, the district attorney prosecuted him, like was able to successfully prosecute him. Partly due to the fact, in their words, that the bullets he had with him weren't silver. <laughs> no. You know, so, like, how could he be there to uh, kill a dogman if he didn't have silver bullets? Mm. Um, that was, like, in the 90s, so I don't know. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they were just uh, having, they were just joking around. But still, it's like, uh, I guess that's how deeply rooted that idea was, regardless of whether um, it has any efficacy. But, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. Before we yeah. break, there might be like a couple good serious things to discuss. Like uh, Anubis, apparently, much like Saint Christopher, you know, he was kind of fused together with Mercury. He, you know, mm. there was a little bit of syncretism with Mercury, who of course is uh, Hermes. You know, uh, who himself is, you know, uh, associated with. Hermes Trismegistus of Hermeticism. Yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, there is some kind of, you know, especially in Gnosticism or in uh, Ophite ideas, according to uh, David Gordon White, in their second century Alexandrian coins that depict Hermes Thoth together with the Cenocephalic apes and the Caduceus, and there's another Ophite source, an Abraxas mm. gemstone depicts the Cenocephalic Hermanubis holding a scepter in each hand and standing between a half moon and star. And on the other side is the Archon Michael. So there is a little bit of like, wow. you know, even uh, in the sort of hermetic stuff, there's a dog connection through uh, Anubis, uh, who is a, uh, closely associated with the dog star Sirius, you know, which is, uh, yeah, this, uh, I guess it was the, like uh, S.K. Bain tells us in uh, his book about yes. the mass ritual. This is just from David Gordon White. Uh, the Egyptian psychopomp Anubis was a god closely identified with the dog star Sirius, whose heliacal rising was of immense importance for the ancient world. The date of this astronomical event, the veritable pivot of the year, was fraught with both danger and promise. Danger because it constituted an endpoint, the death of the year, a death that was made all the more immediate by the cruel midsummer heat of which it was believed to be the source. The canicular days mm-hmm. were nothing less than the opening wide of the gates of hell, Gates that were imagined as the maw of a dog that belched forth the dead, given the form of dogs, or guarded, 
even herded by dread watchdogs or cenocephalics. Indeed, that's, you know, dog-headed people. Indeed, the star was imagined yeah. to be a jet of flame belching forth out of the mouth of the heavenly dog, Canis Major. However, for the Egyptians, the rising of Sirius also heralded with the rising of the Nile, a new agricultural cycle, mm-hmm. a new year, new life, and even the resurrection or translation of the dead into another happier existence. This was Sirius's promise. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that those ideas kind of do... I mean, this is true of, like, all paranormal stuff that, like, it tends to be around like liminal spaces you know like some of the main dogman places are like graveyards and military bases that which are also you know liminal like having to do with war which is like outside of the Mm -hmm. the bounds of the polity and everything uh but it's interesting how Mm -hmm. those ideas like still really linger in Mm -hmm. you know a lot of the stuff the dogman reported since the late 80s half man half dog but with a human scream what is it does it really exist or is it just a myth? Something... something made up? Grab a blanket, turn off your lights, and let's experience five encounter stories of this being. A demonic figure. The story goes back many years. I was probably five at the time, and I am 25 now. It was 20 years ago. Anyways, this story is about me seeing something that looked like a dog standing up. The day was normal, from what I can remember. I had been into town with my father buying some shopping, I think. Eventually, when we got home, I went to my room to play with my toys. I was upstairs for maybe 20 minutes, and I come back down for a sandwich. I remember my dad had made me a tuna and sweet corn sandwich. Delicious. Anyways... I remember sitting on the couch watching some TV. I then remember looking at the living room door. Then the door opened. Now, this is gonna sound very silly, but what I saw was very real. As the door opened, I saw a man dog standing in the doorway. Now, this ghostly apparition didn't move. It had its head held high, but was looking at me, hard to explain sort of using its peripheral vision. It had old raggedy clothes covering its body and was very hairy. I also remember its mouth, full of sharp teeth. Now I know that this experience happened 20 years ago, but I still remember the fear that I felt. See, the way this ghost demon was looking at me, it came across as hate. What I mean by that is, even though it looked like it really, really didn't like me, I also sensed that this being really hated me. I still remember my stomach drop when this horrible hairy beast stood there. The funny thing was, as quick as it started, it was finished. This incident lasted about 30 seconds, and it was over, but long enough to get an eyeful. In the past, when I've heard things, maybe a voice or something move, I never know if it's this animal or man or demon that's doing it. I've heard a deep distorted voices in my past too. Maybe it could be this dog man. (laughs) Who knows? Anyways, I hope you like my story. I'll be posting more soon. What did you want to talk about next? And 
Yeah, it was just uh, during the break. I was, uh, you know, going back, uh, listening to some of the, uh, you know, biggest Dogman hits of Dogman Encounters. There's one, My Uncle's Killed a Dogman. One I was listening to just like three hours of intense Dogman Encounters. Definitely, wow. uh, yeah, one guy just talking about how, you know, a Dogman was like running alongside his vehicle and it turned and looked at him and it uh, smiled at him. And he just felt like, you know, <laughs> it was pure evil. He felt, he said, uh, I felt like, you know, the world was ending or that my whole family had been killed. Uh, just looking at this dog oh man's, God. like, smile. Yikes. Uh, so it is interesting. Yeah, I find it to be an interesting phenomenon to sort of link the, like, uh, earlier ideas around dogmen and also werewolves, wolfmen, you know, wolf beings, uh, anthropoid wolves, whether they transform or not. It was interesting, actually, in, in My Uncle's Killed a Dogman, uh, which is one of the, the mm -hmm. you know, more uh, plausible-sounding ones, actually, in terms of, like, the performance of the guest. The guy mentions, you know, that his uncles, who apparently at one time successfully killed a dog man you know they would always uh, say that you should watch out and try uh, for the dog man's clothes you know because they would actually be transforming uh so by that guy's account actually these were you know werewolves so there's hmm. a lot of murkiness uh going on but anyway it is interesting to consider this sort of phenomenon of the like sort of parasocial or vicarious excitement of like the terror uh, and how that links to and these kind of communities that form around the the storytelling uh, type of things mm -hmm. uh, and the, the yeah. you know uh, ancient interest in, in these in this phenomena. Do you want to? Uh, I mean, do you want to talk about maybe some of these uh, dogman encounters? Are there any other ones you want to kind of uh, dive into that have some interesting aspects? to them we could talk a little bit about Do you want to talk about the missing 411 uh accounts yeah we could start we could start doing missing 411 yeah i figured that again we can maybe do missing 411 down the line like more exhaustively but i decided to go back uh and look at some of the missing 411 stuff we talked a little bit about it in our bigfoot episode and uh a lot of it is uh i found some stuff that's still pretty bigfooty in terms of like the uh, implications that are being made uh, by David Polites, but I did originally come across Missing 411 in a Dogman context. Like, when I first, you know, had heard about Dogman, I think probably both things kind of started to emerge around the same time. I'm not sure how related they are, like, really. I mean, in a way, they are, because they're both sort of not Bigfoot things that had this interesting kind of uh, rebirth or birth uh, that sort of emerged from the Bigfoot sphere. And mm -hmm. uh, David Polites, you know, the guy who does Missing 411, as we kind of talked about in our Bigfoot episode, he was previously a Bigfoot guy, but then he kind of swerved to collecting these stories of mysterious disappearances, mostly in national parks or in other wilderness areas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he never... There's a lot of, like, heavy implication... That's something, you know, the whole idea of this is that it's mysterious, you know, the disappearances don't add up in some way. And a lot of the time, yeah. like, you know, the implication is that there's some kind of, like, Bigfoot connection. But I think, and I don't mm -hmm. know if that was David Polite's original thought, but uh, what, you know, because Bigfoot doesn't really necessarily have that sinister aspect in the way that we talked about before, you know, or that he's become benign for some people, uh... In fact, you know, yeah. just the fact that we are 
calling him Bigfoot. You know, he even has a name. I guess Dogman does as well, but that's a, that's a, you know, he's had this name for many years. Uh, it's sort of a sense of familiarity and, and comfort that we have in Bigfoot. I think that the idea mm-hmm. of getting away from Bigfoot himself and making it this more mysterious sort of phenomenon of missing people, even if the implication is still very much present, and thinking about this more fearsome predatory force as a similar type of cryptid, mm-hmm. uh, this, is, this is kind of related in a way, or the related moments in, in the development of, of yeah. this type of uh, conversation. Well, but, I think I can respect that. I can respect that approach, you know, to not wanting to come down too hard, you know, maybe, you know, he's like the, he's doing a little like Dave McGowan of cryptozoology. Like he's just laying out certain synchronicities and he's yeah, not that is, coming down too hard mm-hmm. on exactly what it all means, but it's just interesting. Right. Yeah. And exactly. of course, you know, a lot of people would like, it's just how you would read into Dave McGowan. Like, Oh my God, this is like the fucking CIA doing all of this. Yeah. Like in this, it's like, Oh my God, it's Bigfoot. Even though he doesn't necessarily always say, he never, you know, he definitively this was bigfoot he never says that's Hmm. like what's so great about it but like you know he'll never actually will come out you know you can go back to his like older books and you can see like oh this guy was a bigfoot researcher but from the missing 411 books you never actually really would know uh you know and a lot of he's kind of doing an insight role yeah uh but kind of he's kind of doing an insight role he's still kind of in the same (laughs) world of like paranormal activity or mysterious wilderness and uh stuff like that but you know because of the ambiguity because he never mentions bigfoot you know a lot of the uh stories have to do with kind of like mysterious bears or things that are bears that don't quite Mm -hmm. uh add up or bear behavior that seems odd they're like here's a here's a classic uh example of one you know also some of these stories are from the the distant or relatively distant past you know not like uh, uh ancient times as we've been talking about uh earlier but you know, a uh, hundred years ago. Like this one is from 1910 uh, in Wisconsin, actually. Okay. So this is the Bilgrian family. They lived in a rural area outside McMillan, Wisconsin. So Mrs. Bilgrian placed little Roy Bilgrian in the front yard of their residence while she did household work. Several minutes after placing Roy in the yard, Mrs. Bilgrian returned to see a horrifying event unfold in front of her. An October 17th article in the Daily News described what happened in the Bilgrian yard. Mrs. Herman Bilgrian was horrified and emerging from her home to see a huge black bear making for the woods with her child. Helpless from fright, her hysterical cries attracted attention of a neighbor's daughter who was passing the Bilgrian residence, and she immediately gave chase to the bear. Following the bear for about three blocks, on encountering a wire fence, the Bruin dropped his burden and disappeared into the forest. The boy was found to be fine without injury. When I read this case, it struck me as a highly unusual event. Bears usually attack their prey on scene and do not run away with something alive in their mouths. It also seems quite late in the year for a bear to be out running in the snow. One would think it would be hibernating. Uh, on October 26, 1910, the Marshfield Times had a different account of the Bill Green event. Mrs. Bill Green coming out of the house suddenly looked at her child was horrified to see a large dark animal, which she thinks was a wolf, carrying her baby off to the woods. Uh, Polite says, I think it's fascinating that five days after the incident, the Bill Green story changed drastically from a bear to a large wolf. That is a significant change. Hmm. If you read the woman's statement carefully, see a large dark animal, which she thinks is a wolf. The woman sounds like she's not sure what she observed, but is trying to rationalize it away. I believe most of us know the difference between a wolf and a bear, especially if we followed it for over three blocks. We will never know what attempted to kidnap Roy Bill Green but it is an aspect of the missing person scenario that we all need to understand if we are to fully comprehend the missing person phenomenon. 
So, you know, like, again, okay. uh, Bigfoot dogman isn't stated, but, like... <laughs> is it like, a wolf? Is it... Uh, yeah. Like, Something between a wolf and a bear? Mm, yeah, exactly. So you can see, you know, uh, the uh, implication there. There's one that we read in, in our Bigfoot episode, actually, where, you know, a girl was taken by... Uh, something that, you know, she was, she disappeared and she was found like really far away from where she disappeared, you know, uh, so far away. She was very young, you know, like three. She was very mm -hmm. far away from where you would think that uh, she, uh, you know, would be. Uh, like, she would have been able to travel, you know, just on her own. And she said that, mm -hmm. you know, she remembered that she was given some berries by like a big dog. That a big dog like took berries in its paw and like offered them to her. Which, mm -hmm. that's an odd thing to experience. So, you know... Yeah, Yeah, I mean, these are stories from a long time ago. They're told by children. But, I mean, again, we kind of talked about how some of the beasts of the Bray Road stuff uh, emerges out of uh, the, some of the stories around that. They start to blend together with some of the stories of occult rituals happening in the area previously. Yes. So it actually mm -hmm. is interesting, these young kids being taken, you know, I think I kind of mentioned this in the Bigfoot episode, huh. the same parallel, young kids being taken and yeah. having these stories that seem unbelievable, but, yep. you know. Yep, like like Ch Chuck Norris flew in on a broomstick exactly, and like levitated a giraffe, in a uh, tunnel underneath McMartin. Exactly, we, yeah. went on, we, we took an elevator down underground and we saw a giraffe and that we rode in a broomstick, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, hmm. So, you know, you're interesting. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, yeah. Yeah. You're tempted to kind of write it off. But mm, yeah, that might that might lead to you found an interesting article on cult of dot com uh, that was titled uh, Beast of Bray Road, Goatman and Occult Rituals in the Wisconsin Woods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it states its question right up top here, which is something that uh, very, is very tantalizing to me. Were the violent rituals of satanic cults in the Wisconsin woods responsible for creatures like the goat man and the beast of Bray Road? So, I mean, uh, interesting question. You know, I guess there was quite a bit of activity. I think I see somewhere in here um, that basically one of the counties uh, where the where the Kettle Moraine was uh, was located. I guess it's kind of a rural area. Yeah, basically it was one of the hotbeds of young people uh, practicing kind of devil worship stuff in Wisconsin at the mm -hmm. time in the 1980s. Right. Um, I forget. I don't know. It's, it's hard to quantify something like that, like who was doing the most occultism. Mm -hmm. But um, there were a lot of but at the same time, it, I guess, uh, you know, people. Like yeah. Basically. No oh, yeah. Here, here's what. It, yeah. Yeah. Here. There are a few points that they uh, they discovered that realized there might be something to it. Um, oh, yeah. So this is. Uh, I guess there was a documentary, The Bray Road Beast, which I think maybe you watched. Yeah, I did watch uh, that. Yeah. On Amazon mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They, the filmmakers did a podcast about it. And I guess, you know, it sparked something in this writer. They said the, the man in front of the camera was John Fredrickson, a former Walworth County animal control officer. During the time of the Bray Road sightings, he had been investigating numerous cases of animal mutilation that were seemingly connected to occult rituals in the woods around Elkhorn. And while some of it may have been teenagers, I mean, but, so what if it was? Mm -hmm. uh, 
John believes local law enforcement, oh my God, John believes local law enforcement, teachers, and other prominent citizens may have been involved, and people were coming from around the world to participate. Initially, I didn't think much about these claims. Uh, Right? Yeah, I assume, yeah, Bandar Bush was flying in, uh, Alicia Jelly was there. Uh, I I assumed it was run-of-the-mill 90s satanic panic. During Seth's discussion on the podcast, however, a few more points were touched on that made me realize there may actually be something to it. One, Walworth County was one of the top three counties for satanic activity. Two, animals were mutilated for the rituals. Three, an FBI agent speaking to John admitted they were aware of the activity. So I don't know if they mean that Walworth County was one of the top three counties for satanic activity in the entire U.S. or just in the state of Wisconsin. Um, either way, it's kind of um, uh, remarkable yeah, according uh, to like that a- there was that much satanic activity I mean, and i actually the don't Bray know Road. it's I'm the same bit... thing where you know linda godfrey like there was a uh, manila folder that like some guy had i'll try to find the actual account oh yeah yeah it, the but, big, yeah uh... like there was like a big manila folder that uh you know the police department had that was like uh you know where like just labeled werewolf uh it was all the sightings uh-huh. that people mm-hmm. had had of it yeah yeah so just to be clear the county seat of walworth county is elkhorn where that's where bray bray Road Yes, was exactly. and was like the nexus of all of the yeah not just dog man but but goat man as well which you know i mean if there's a lot of occult rituals happening yeah this is uh um, linda godfrey's you got a dog man you got a goat man yeah this is linda godfrey's account mm-hmm. of uh ex- exactly uh this this event and deals with some of the occult stuff that had proceeded as well this is the uh labeled the first witness I started with the freelancer's Mm -hmm. bus driver friend, Pat Lester. Lester lived in Spring Prairie, a tiny community east of Helgorn on Highway 11, not far from Bray Road, and was the mother of a young woman named Lori Endrizzi. Lester told me that one day she had told Doris Gibson, a teenager who rode her bus and was also Lester's neighbor, about something weird Lori had seen a year or two earlier on Bray Road. As Lester told Gibson of Lori's experience with what appeared to be a wolf or a large dog but with human characteristics, She noticed Gibson was looking at her with a shocked expression. Gibson had seen the exact same thing, the surprised teen told Lester, but had been too afraid to tell anyone about it. And Drizzy had been too frightened of what she saw to spread her horror story around as well. She didn't want people to think she was crazy. But neither Gibson or Andrizzi had ever forgotten the strange creature they saw. And Lester told me she had heard some unusual howling at night not far from Spring Prairie. Finding out that Gibson had also seen something strange, and Drizzy had recently told her story to John Fredrickson, animal control officer for Walworth County, hoping she could shed some light on the animal. Unexpectedly, Andrizzi and Fredrickson had a very spooky experience while discussing the sightings. Andrizzi had always had an eerie feeling about what she had seen and, like the freelancer, thought it might be related to some type of unspecified cult activity. She and Fredrickson were discussing that possibility, she said, when suddenly, several books on a shelf fastened to the wall in Fredrickson's office jumped off the shelf as if they were pushed and fell to the floor. No one had banged a door shut or anything like that, recalled Andrizzi, and there was no reason for them to fall. The shelf had bookends on it. We just looked at each other and stopped talking about it. Of course, I don't know anything about that story at the time, or sorry, I didn't know anything about the story at the time, but I arranged a time to meet with Andrizzi at her mother's house. I also set up an appointment with Fredrickson and paid a call on him. Fredrickson's office was a small room in the Lakeland Animal Shelter south of Elkhorn on Highway 67. He did a lot of undercover work for Mm -hmm. the shelter, investigating puppy mills and cases of animal abuse. Fredrickson was the person police and citizens would call when a skilled animal handling or identification was needed. And now, people had been calling him to say they had seen what looked like a werewolf, for lack of a better term. 
Oh, so this is the guy. I guess it wasn't, like, a police officer, but, you know, police consultant, animal control person. Still, uh, mm-hmm. I was amazed okay. when he pulled from his desk drawer a manila file folder in which he was keeping a list of calls concerning the mysterious animals seen around Bray and Brower's roads. With tongue-in-cheek humor, Fredrickson had labeled the folder Werewolf. No books jumped off the shelf when I saw, but when we weren't discussing paranormal activities. Uh, but then we weren't discussing paranormal activities. Uh, in fact, Fredrickson told me he didn't believe people were seeing any sort of paranormal creature. He told me he thought it was probably a large coyote, perhaps seen leaping from an unusual angle. If it was caught at just the exact moment it was lunging, it would have appeared to be on two legs, he explained. Still, this was official business, and the werewolf word had been used. And it isn't surprising that Fredrickson would have preferred to err on the side of caution when talking to a reporter as opposed to a citizen like Andrizzi. So, yeah, she says, once the werewolf file was shown to me, the story became news. And that was her, you know, uh, experience of the case getting out and becoming a whole thing. Wow. Uh, Okay, so a bunch of books flew out from the shelves. uh, Yeah, according to that story. uh, And those people both had felt... It's interesting that they both were afraid to talk about it, like for fear of ridicule or for fear of the animal itself in some way. But they were both discussing the possibility uh, of cult connections. They, that's something that mm. had occurred to them, you know, originally. And uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's interesting. Yeah, like when and, we first you know, saw I was just like, doing a, to do with the cult, you know, uh, it's odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just uh, I was just looking around at um, at Walworth County, seeing you know what what kind of old uh, Lovecraftian shit could we find about this relatively rural county in southern. It's about forty five minutes from Milwaukee, kind of up against the uh, Illinois border. And uh, there's a couple things. One interesting thing, I don't know if um, it was mentioned in The Beast of Bray Road. It, it very well might have been. But you talked about Indian burial grounds. Yeah. So there is actually a national historic park, um, or it's registered as a historic place, called the Whitewater Effigy Mounds Preserve, mm-hmm. uh, or the Maples Mounds. And basically, it is an ancient, they're ancient. Uh, Native American prehistoric burial grounds. Uh, it's a, basically a ceremonial burial site that dates to between 200 and 1000 AD. The park contains a collection of animal and geometric mounds located on the eastern bank of an old riverbed and among the park's thick native oak trees. The effigy mounds once included a community area with 30 circular huts inhabited by the mound builders. The 12, possibly 13, effigy mounds at the site are what survive of this village today. The site continues to be used for Native American ceremonial powwows, um, and you know it's free and open to the public. Um, I don't know exactly how close this is to, uh, you know, Bray Road, but uh, at the same time, you know, kind of interesting. Um, did they think? Uh, did, did they say Bray Road specifically was on the site of an Indian burial ground? Uh, I'm not sure if Bray Road specifically is. Or rumored. It was uh, another place in Wisconsin, I think. Uh, that, uh, but you know, I guess. There could be uh, Indian burial grounds all over the place. I saw something uh, interesting kind of on that same tip about the very different location of the land between the lakes, uh, which also has like a, mm-hmm. you know, associated dog man story. And uh, yeah, let me see. Okay. Yeah, uh, um, that it was like, uh, you know, that location was a place that had a lot of uh, burial grounds, not just uh, indigenous ones, but of, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, people who had moved to that area in general. I'll try to find the uh, 
actual yeah i think here it is okay well you know while you're looking for that i just they're okay there's something there is something sus in uh in this county that i just noticed that is kind of it's a, it's a little something so it is actually home since 1915 there's a there's a lake in this county um in walworth county called uh uh, Geneva Lake and there's a city attached to it called Lake Geneva mm-hmm. and I guess it's, it's like a popular tourist uh, destination um, and so I guess that on I believe on the shores of this lake yeah on the south shore of this lake in the town of Lynn Wisconsin uh, was moved the Northwestern Military and Naval Academy which was originally in Highland Park Illinois near Chicago uh, but then moved up to wisconsin in 1915 and i think operated until the 90s and a few very like notable people including a curtis roosevelt who is the eldest grandson of fdr um and uh spencer tracy the actor and a couple air force generals uh all went to this place and what uh, was kind of interesting is in 1995, the institution merged with rival school St. John's Military Academy to form St. John's Northwestern Military Academy. The Lake Geneva property was abandoned for a few years, which fell victim to vandalism and became the late night choice of neighboring kids. Maybe doing occult rituals? Uh, mm-hmm. Before the beginning of the 21st century, the property was sold to a developing company. Um, several acres of the academy land have been transformed into an affluent community peppered with expensive homes. Very rich people. The Davidson Building in Lake Geneva uh, no longer exists, but in its place is a piece of stone from the School of the Plaque of Remembrance. Now, this is interesting. Scenes from the building interior were used for the filming of Damien Omen 2. Hmm. (laughs) So, and that came out in 1978. That's obviously a sequel to The Omen. Um, That's when he's at, like, military school Yeah, it basically was about, like... Uh... I think so. I think so. And so that was that was actually shot at this uh, at this basically. um, Yeah. Wow. Just looking at the plot to this, like he's he goes to an academy and Damien's new commander, Sergeant Neff, is revealed to be a secret Satanist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, um, Michael Michael Quinn was the title consultant on that movie, uh, too. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Um, Wouldn't surprise me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This is. Yeah. Yeah. This is the okay. passage about the uh, land between the lakes that uh, I had come across. Uh, it's uh, from paranormalstories.blogspot.com. Uh, in western Kentucky, cool. there is a national recreational area situated between the Kentucky and Barkley Lakes known as the Land Between the Lakes, or LBL for short. This piece of land consists of 300 miles of shoreline, 17, uh, 170,000 acres of forest, and 200 miles of walking trails. In 1963, by order of President Kennedy, the federal government used eminent domain to buy and tear down homes and businesses, forcing 700 families out of the area known as Between the Rivers. Over 228 family cemeteries are located throughout the area, long forgotten. White settlers, war veterans, large number of uh, infants, black slaves, Chinese immigrants, and Native Americans lay beneath layers of earth. Uh, And, you know, of course, the biggest story about this area... Uh, that's that according to this site for hundreds of years is that of a wolf-like creature among the trees attacking cattle and livestock during day and night. Uh, a wolf that stands nearly seven feet tall with long, thick hair covering its body, you know, foul stench emanating from its body, oh etc. Uh, but it mm-hmm. is interesting that, like, the 
you know, uh, national park was established, like the use of eminent domain, and a bunch of people were pushed out of their homes. Like, it does give an interesting uh, spin on some of this stuff with the national parks, uh, where, of course, national parks are huge areas of wilderness that people go to to appreciate natural beauty. Uh, but there are huge areas where, uh, with a lot of treacherous terrain where it's possible to become lost. But it is interesting that, like, you know, mm-hmm. when you really think about, like, the angle where you have, like, people coming in. And, I mean, I think we both listened to a really great Dogman uh, YouTube-type podcast uh, in preparing for this episode uh, where the mm-hmm. uh, host was you know, apologizing profusely for his slow episode release schedule, uh, uh, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, and yeah. such. Uh, um, <laughs> just after that, he, he mentioned the uh, Dogman uh, stuff has a lot of cover-up uh, things, uh, cover-up allegations around it, uh, and that there is like one account, I think, of uh, a guy who, you know, hit a Dogman with his car or something. Maybe you recall better than I do, but I uh, hit like, uh, and some you know, agents came to him and were like, uh, you know, uh, you hit a bear. And he's like, no, I didn't. He's like, you don't understand. You hit a bear, <laughs> you know, right? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah, he was also speculating about yeah. what it would take for a dogman to be exposed. And he went on a long fantasia about what would happen if uh president trump were mauled by a dog man oh yeah yeah if president trump were attacked by a dog man let's just say yeah let's just say for example president trump were to be (laughs) mauled by a dog man if a dog man killed a president yeah uh, just imagine you know like uh what would happen i mean yeah you it would be hard to but i feel like they would still be able to cover it up you know uh they would just say it was something else right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah, yeah, it's, it's always uh, pretty easy to, to sweep under the rug. Uh, there know. was apparently, uh, yeah. it was determined, of course, to be like a normal gray wolf, but there was a big thing a while ago in, I'm trying to think where the actual place was. It was north central Montana near Denton. A strange animal was mm-hmm. killed, uh, and no one really could figure out what it was. Uh, was it a wolf? It was a wolf-like creature. People were speculating, like, oh, is it a an extinct dire wolf or something, or is it a hybrid between a dog and a wolf? Eventually, apparently they determined that it was a normal wolf, which is weird. There was this whole mystery, but there was one really great uh, comment in that article, which was, that could very well be what's being called Dogman. They're spotted each day, and the government quells any and all reports. Several people report being strong-armed to keep quiet about their reports by men wearing black suits. These are just facts. Look into it if you don't believe me. They're just mm. facts. Just facts. Just facts. Um, yeah. I, I think I just discovered something that's going to... I discovered a couple things that, that I think are going to blow the lid off this site of activity mm, okay. um, in uh, Walworth County, okay? So the first, it's uh, it's kind of, you know, it's hiding in plain sight. I, I just looked at the Lake Geneva Wikipedia to see, is there any other information there? Now, <laughs> I'm going to read a couple things that... Yeah. Uh, that, you know, are just a little interesting. Uh, there's like a three three little things here. First, in 1954, Lake Geneva was one of the three finalists for the location of the United States Air Force Academy, but ultimately lost to Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's kind of interesting. How about this? In 1968, the late Hugh Hefner built his first Playboy Resort in Lake Geneva. The club closed in 1981 and in 1982 was converted into the Americana Resort and in 1993 to the present Grand Geneva Resort. Okay, so Hugh Hefner's hanging out. Was he from Chicago? I forget. So maybe he knew about it, but still interesting Playboy's up in there. But check this out. Okay. 
There was also a music recording studio in Lake Geneva called Royal Recorders, uh, LaRouche Pill Alert, but formerly called Shade Tree Studios. But it was a music recording studio in Lake Geneva where certain artists such as Ministry, uh, the like industrial metal band from Chicago, um, recorded their album Psalm 69, The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs in 1992. <laughs> Uh, Cheap Trick, uh, Cheap Trick, which is from nearby Rockford, Illinois, uh, recorded their Standing on the Edge album in 85 there. The band uh, Queensryche, which uh, is a band whose name is never sussed me out, uh, recorded their album Empire in 1990. The Crash Test Dummies recorded mm, 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 in 1993. <laughs> uh, Iron Maiden. And last but not least, Nine Inch Nails recorded the Broken EP at this studio in 1992 and also the band Skid Row. So uh, definitely a certain kind of vibe up at that studio, I would say. Like, bleh, like, I hate myself, like, industrial metal from the 80s and 90s. So Seem to be uh, really their cup of tea. So, you know, maybe if there's a spike in occult activity, it was from all the like uh, totally like dark and broken bands that were coming up there, you know, to basically uh, record their like psyopy albums. Um, but that's not all, actually, because then I found something that's like even older than that. Let me just see if I can. I found something from like 1898 that was called a summer school of nature study. Uh, that said, in view of the fact that long, aimless outings do not result in the greatest pleasure or profit, a movement has taken form at Geneva Lake, Wisconsin, to aid in making summer vacations of more value to children, on the theory that, quote, 10 to 12 weeks spent in idleness defeats the purpose of vacations. The large number of children who annually seek Geneva Lake to enjoy its beauty and remarkable resources inspired the idea that some organized effort should be made to use a portion of their time for something besides undirected recreations. Children are naturally inquisitive and desire to know, so that a properly planned course of nature study is to them a most valuable kind of play. Uh, the design of the summer school is to enable children to investigate, discover, and express in various ways the great facts and laws of nature. Life in its various manifestations will be the watchword. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I thought there was a, a reference to the occult here that popped up, but I guess not. Um, I guess there was also something in the... Uh, I don't know. This is in Metaphysical Magazine for some reason. So I don't know why this... Okay, yeah, that's the connection. Is that this is in Metaphysical Magazine, a monthly review of the occult sciences. Uh. And... Like somebody, I guess, uh, uh, posted this about how they're going to make a nature like summer camp school for kids. Um, and, you know, it does odd. say, uh, OK, there's a little more. There's a little more here. The course proposed includes the study of the physical features of the surrounding country, the waters and rocks, the trees, plants, birds, insects, boats, etc. Like in correlation with and supplementary Waldorf, uh, stuff where they're going to yeah, about the gnomes. It does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. They uh, they say in correlation with and supplementary to the nature study will be literature, drawing, watercolor painting, toolwork, and physical expression. The intention is to answer the natural interrogations of the child and to direct his activities on the plane of his development, at the same time giving him freedom and pleasure without schoolroom restraint, leadings to make his rambles profitable and develop habits of observation. Children are keen in finding out nature's secrets. It is their delight to know. A summer under proper leadership gives both profit and and pleasure so i guess they uh they okay so this is interesting the following courses have been arranged uh the literature mary h ford 
Uh, doesn't that name pop up a lot? Uh, that's in Chicago. Ideal Education, A.B. Stockham, who wrote this, the doctor, a Mother's Conference, um, and then Practical Metaphysics, Sarah Wilder Pratt, uh, and then Dr. T.Y. Kane will give a course on Lectures of Metaphysical Healing, July 23rd to August 6th. Dr. George E. Burnell, a course on meditation later. Other classes will be organized as demanded, and further information may be obtained from Dr. A.B. Stockham in Chicago. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then the next chapter is Living Crystals, but we won't go into that, but, <laughs> you know, that is very Living interesting crystal. that the, these spiritualists, like, were setting up a, a summer camp for children up in Lake Geneva in, I think, yeah, like, 1898, so, eh, you know, this place was not untouched by no, uh, seem, yeah, a certain thing, and I guess, history. you know, a lot of people... yeah. Yeah, and I guess there are some prominent um, residents of uh, of Lake Geneva. Let me see if anybody pops up here. Yeah, Margaret Baer, the U.S. Air National Guard General, uh, Hiram Barber, a U.S. representative from uh, Illinois, uh, some guy S. Carey who's in Bonnie Vare. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and you know, a few. Oh my God. Uh, okay, brace yourself for this. Mm-hmm. You ready? You know who, yeah, you know who lives there? Uh, Gary Gygax, writer and game designer, oh, yes, creator of Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. All right. Uh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, that, uh, and yeah. then also, uh, Mary, yeah. and then uh, not one, but two, uh, Margaret Weiss and Mary L. Kirchhoff, who are both authors of the Dragonlance novels. So, hmm, you know, interesting. You got some politicians, authors, like musicians coming in and out, and then some Air Force generals thrown in for good measure, and you got an interesting little resort community there, I yeah, would say. Yeah, well, like, the biggest thing... Yeah. I, you know, and and filming the Omen there as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is that, like, there were this, like, this was a spat of, like, the cold activity, like, it wasn't just, like, teens going out in the woods and, like, lighting candles, you know, there was, like, verified, like, animal mutilation that was weird you know people didn't know mm. why exactly it was but it uh if people were speculating oh maybe you know these were they were doing dog fights and then these dogs were injured so they had to kill them there's a section called cult connections in the beast of bray road tailing wisconsin's mm. werewolf that linda godfrey wrote oh yeah and uh yeah so uh you know she gives some general background for uh this uh so the first strange magazine article on the Beast of Bray Road made a point of noting various local paranormal manifestations or hints of them. Writer Scarlett Sankey quoted a Milwaukee Sentinel article from June 1991 entitled Pets Mutilated, Cult Activity Suspected in Lynn, uh, in which the county's uh, animal control officer, John Fredrickson, described finding dozens of mutilated dog and cat carcasses and skeletons near a road in Lynn Township, about 10 miles south of Bray Road. Uh, so... The animals had slit throats, were decapitated, or had their hearts removed, and speculated the odd kills could mean cult activities of some sort were taking place nearby. The bodies were disposed of quickly. I had interviewed Fredrickson multiple times, uh, and he told me most animal disposal cases were either people trying to get rid of dead pets or dogs killed in dog fighting. There were also cases of a few unscrupulous dog mm-hmm. racers disposing of greyhounds past their prime. Yeah, by, like, decapitating them and cutting their hearts out. Anyway, uh, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, and on. even carcasses left from people who consider dog meat or sometimes dog parts a delicacy for their own tables. Mm. Whether these grizzly finds had anything to do with either unspecified cults or the beasts of Bray Road sightings has been disputed. I have yet to find a clear link to either. 
Sankey also quoted Fredrickson as saying that a reliable source told him that one night someone saw a figure draped in a black hood and cloak emerge from the carcass site riding a black horse and followed by a large black dog. Even with the black dog, there is still not necessarily yeah. a link to the sightings because none of the beast witnesses reporting seeing energy images like this with their sightings. Yeah, then she goes on to mention uh, that, you know, there was uh, the abandoned house on Highway H, which was visited by local kids. Some people okay, went to explore okay. the place. Uh, they found rooms containing mattresses, discarded blue jeans, empty wine bottles, typical teenage party leftovers. However, another room was said to hold some kind of homemade altar or makeshift table, as well as black candles or other standard oh occult paraphernalia. And at least one other house in the country near Whitewater was said to be the site of similar strange goings on. So, yeah, oh, uh, animal mutilations. That kind of reminds me of um, the uh, idea that John Keel brought up in the Mothman prophecies where he was saying uh, this interesting notion that, you know, people would see these hairy uh, animals uh, carrying off pets or, or livestock or whatever and then when they showed up mutilated they'd be like oh you know they were killed by this mysterious being but you know maybe that was the psyop or something and they were actually used for some occult purpose yeah let me see here there's another thing did did that book go in at all about the saint killian's cemetery in lake geneva uh, i don't think so uh yeah, I hadn't come across it, but apparently if you just Google like St. Killian Cemetery, Lake Geneva, it, I guess, has the reputation of being one of the most haunted places in the United States. Uh, I guess that um, according to WisconsinHauntedHouses.com, a ghostly priest is said to haunt the cemetery along with the sounds of a ringing bell, mysterious mists, eerie sounds and footsteps. The bell is believed to be from a phantom church that used to stand nearby before it burned down decades ago. Stories say that the basement of the church was once used for devil worship, leading to the dangerous paranormal activity here. Hmm. I guess a lot of people, there's like videos on YouTube of people going there. It's on, uh, yeah, Haunted Wisconsin. Um, a lot of people say that their local legends claim that cults frequented the place uh, and used the church for their rituals. And the graveyard is filled with graves of children. And allegedly, according to Haunted Wisconsin, the church was burned down in 1998 because of the ghost priest <laughs> allegedly haunted uh, it. I don't know what that sentence means, but I don't know if it's like priest. somebody burned it down like because. Well, maybe they burned it down like because a ghost priest, they thought a ghost priest was haunting it. But also maybe it was a cult that burned it down. I guess the cemetery is still there, but the church is now gone and people say that basically it's like one of the sussest uh places um <laughs> the sussest places in, uh, in wisconsin yeah uh, and it also might be i'm looking at it right now it might because i think the guy davidson uh was the one that founded um that military academy on the lake and he may have been the davidson from harley davidson i just have to double check that might be bullshit um but oh, you know i just remembered that too. there was a uh, yeah. a book that whitley schreiber wrote in the 80s uh you know we talked about little whitley schreiber and his hmm. uh many sus uh connections uh or the possible sus implications of his writings in the secret school and of course his famous communion and things like that and uh yeah he wrote a, a book that became a movie i'm trying to remember who was in it uh 
it, who was in the movie Wolfen? Oh, uh, um, uh, no, Communion? Uh, I guess no one of note. Uh, Albert no. Finney was in it, but there was a movie before that called Wolfen, based on his book. Uh, or maybe it came out after the, oh, okay, the okay. movie Communion. I don't really uh, recall. But uh, yeah, he wrote a book called Wolfen, uh, which was basically about... Oh, yeah, yeah, the wolf in, uh, yeah. These shapeshifters, kind of. Uh, the uh, man-like uh, mm. wolves. Uh, super intelligent, like a pack of wolf-like entities. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just remembered that. Uh, it's been a while since I've actually seen or thought about Wolfen, but uh, it is interesting. Yeah, it was his first no- his first um, fiction novel. Wow, the, with that the wolf in. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting connection. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, well, you know what? That actually ties to something that you linked to that I kind of wanted to uh, bring up, which was sort of the because, uh, uh, of course, right? Oh, the Hitler yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's how this. Right. Uh, you found that in an interesting book. Yeah. Let me see where it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The lycanthropy uh, in German mm-hmm, literature. Right which is uh it actually gets into a few different things that uh, i find very interesting topics including uh you know the the verwolf right. uh, brigades but um it's quite a, a a hot literary analysis of like the relationship between hitler and wolves yeah. and all these other mm-hmm. things he thought but, of himself as being um, a wolf maybe i'll just of, read it um, wolf for himself yeah yes uh, yeah there's this is some interesting stuff yeah uh-huh. exactly yeah. exactly yeah, I think maybe I'll. Uh, yeah, this is from the chapter six, Hitler and Hitler the Wolf, and literary parodies after 1945. So, the wolf became a national icon in the Third Reich, not only a figure of imperialist aggression, but primarily of berserker-style resistance to foreign invasion in the final months of the war. Hitler, in particular, the tyrant as Wolfman, saw himself as a wolf. He was familiar with the Disney cartoon Three Little Pigs. Hmm, from 1933, and was frequently overheard whistling its theme song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? <laughs> what? As suggested, uh, wow, I didn't know Hitler yeah. was such a Disney, yeah, a Disney fan. Wow, okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of great nuggets in this chapter. Uh, it's suggested in Chapter 5, Hitler's case of wolf neurosis could have been similar to that of Freud's Wolfman and that it may have been based on the trauma of witnessing his parents' sexual act when he was three years old. Although Hitler saw his father as an aggressor, as a wolf, like his son, Alois Hitler, also owned a large German shepherd, unlike the Freudian Wolfman, he did not develop a wolf phobia but overcame it by deeply identifying with wolves. By living up to the meaning of his first name, Hitler subconsciously followed Freud's logic in Totem and Taboo of killing off the patriarchal leader, his own father, whom he saw as a rival, but then asserted himself as the new patriarchal leader of the entire horde, the German Volk. In the final months of the war, this is interesting, the Nazis developed a werewolf cult setting up a berserk troop, quote, trained to engage in clandestine operations behind enemy lines, a top-secret movement reminiscent of, but not necessarily modeled on, Hermann Lohn's concept of resistance in his 1910 novel Der Werwolf. Today, Lons is a relatively unknown author, but his novel became an instant bestseller in the Third Reich, which celebrated him as a front fighter and was enamored with the book's wolf imagery and its hero, Wolf, a berserk-like figure who fights with the ferocity of a wolf. And this is a quote from the book. Our captain's name is Wolf, and he is a real wolf. Wherever he bites, there are 33 holes. Wow, okay. <laughs> okay. Hence, I think we call ourselves... Yeah, right? Okay. Hence, I think we call ourselves the werewolves. Note the H in the original title, Der Werwolf, uh, derived from Sikh Verhen, to practice resistance, 
and where we have opposed any nefarious acts, we leave as a sign three chops with the hatchet, one here, one there, and one to connect the two. So they leave like a rune, like etched out in a hatchet, I guess, basically. Um, and wow, 33. Okay. The novel contributed to inspiring the Artamanan Society of the 1920s, an organization that advocated the formation of communities of Verbauern, so-called defense farmers that were set up against the threat from Poland to the demilitarized Weimar Republic. While the theme of lycanthropy is poorly developed in Lons's book, the idea of a Volkssturm, an attack involving the entire people during the Second World War, may have owed more to Hitler's own identification with wolves, and in particular with the god of storm and war, right. Wotan, Odin. Odin's wild hunt with the berserks may have served Hitler and his entourage as a mythical model, but so did Napoleon's Landsturm of 1813. Hitler seemed to have identified very closely with Wotan as the wild huntsman leading the Wutende Heer, the furious army of berserkers. One of his favorite paintings was Franz von Stuck's Die Wildjagd, the Wild Hunt of 1889, and he may have envisioned his own proximity to Wotan, also via the animals with which the, la the latter is associated, the two ravens Hugen and Munin, and the wolf Fenrir, who would sit by Wotan's side to be fed only by him. In his last days, Hitler too allowed no one else to touch or feed his shepherd's dog's pup, Wolf. Uh, the desperate use of berserks against the enemies of the Reich also became known as Unternehmen Carnival, Operation Carnival, and on 1st April 1945, Goebbels made his infamous appeal to the Werwolves, quote, hatred is our prayer and revenge is our war whoop. It was the moment when the werewolves had gone from an originally clandestine operation to a public terrorist organization, and Goebbels planned to form bands of partisans, even a Werewolf radio hmm, program, and a newspaper for this organization, uh, Zina LeVay. The Werewolves were freedom fighters, Freiheitskampfer, a concept which evokes the terminology associated with Homo Sasser as being Wolfsfrei with berserkers as free as wolves to do anything, a desperate notion of freedom in the end, and one more linked to self-sacrifice than to liberation from the enemy. But this new terror organization was directed at least as much at faltering German civilians as against the Allies, as the Volkischer Beobachter made clear in no uncertain terms, quote, the werewolf justice will strike wherever meat creatures try to abandon their ranks. The wolf's aggression thus turning inward upon its own offspring, this strategy is far removed from any nurturing instincts that may be accredited to wolves. Victor Klemperer has even argued that in the final minutes of the Third Reich, the so-called Bandenkampfer, gang fighters, were letting down their masks, revealing the true bestial and thus primordial mythical nature of National Socialism. The metaphorical wolf, animal passions that had become suppressed with the Enlightenment and led to national neurosis, was at last fully set free in the Nazis' self-devouring, all-consuming final showdown before their complete Untergang downfall. Mm -hmm. Wagner's Götterdammerung, Twilight of the Gods, which was modeled on Wotan's and the world's end at Ragnarok, had found its grand historical enactment, at least from the point of view of these self-deluded werewolves. Hitler's manic vision of total destruction and of himself as a, quote, Teutonic god fulfilling ancient myth included not only the concept of totaler Krieg, total war, in the final days of the Second World War, but also the destruction of all Germans as not worthy of their leader. The path for this had already been laid through genocide in the preceding years the, through the objective of eliminating one entire people in the Holocaust. The inevitable destruction of the world in one, quote, tremendous Holocaust was a vision Hitler received from Wagner, and we've seen specific 
specific intuitive references to this as early as in Hess's Steppenwolf novel in 1927, which aligns the wolf with Wagner and the view towards impending social destruction. Keeping in mind that the wolf is a specifically Germanic concept in the context of expulsion, one may be tempted to argue that Carl Jung, uh, argue with Carl Jung that myths and archetypal motifs of a given culture determine that culture's political actions. In his Wotan essay, of 1936, Jung says that, quote, a race slash nation has its characteristic behavior molded by their cultural portrayal of a specific archetype. One can speak of Wotan as an archetype, as mediated through elements of Germany's history and culture. It is specifically in the reduction of humans in the camps to parasites or vermin that the natural boundaries between two species at opposite ends of the evolutionary scale are transgressed ad extremis. Although largely a relic of the religious racism of earlier ages, the Varger also fits into this paradigm of parasitism, of ungezeifer vermin, and thus becomes part of the scientific racism of the 20th century whose vocabulary of contagion results from the technological advances in microbiology and bacteriology. Ungezeifer, a word used by Lons to label the Romanis in 1910, carries the meaning of an animal that cannot be sacrificed because of its uncleanness, but it can be killed by anyone, even the father, as we have seen in Kafka. Following the Hegelian master-slave logic... The despot needs the homo sacer as an outcast. Sorry, uh, uh, the two mics there. Uh, the sovereign outside of law seems to feel the pressure of rendering his unlimited power visible to himself and others by stripping some of his subjects of all their rights and taking them outside, ex capere of law, into the state of exception. The Nazis persecuted groups and individuals whom they labeled as racially unclean and parasitic, and according to the rationale of the time, it necessitated their ultimate treatment as animals of the lowest order, as beings at a level lower than animals. In his study of abnormality, <laughs> Michel Foucault mentions, as one aspect of monstrosity, the creature between life and death, a phenomenon that evokes not only the undead of myth and folklore, but also the homo sacer of the camps. In this transgression of natural limits, the homo sacer is that Foucauldian monster between life and death. It is specifically in the reduction of humans to parasites, to lice, where the unclean homo sacer of the camps and the medieval wolfman, the varger expelled from the community and at the mercy of anyone who wanted to kill him, become identical. It does not surprise, then, that in his duality of perpetrator and victim, this figure also appears in literary representations of the Third Reich and of the Holocaust in particular. In different guises, the wolfman as perpetrator and victim of genocide makes reappearances in Gunter Grass's The Tin Drum, Dog Ears, and in Edward and Edgar Hilsenrath's The Nazi and the Barber. In those texts, in which the Third Reich and to varying degrees the Holocaust become thematic, the wolfman can more than ever be seen in his ambivalence of tyrant and victim. As as previously observed, this duality was a feature of the outcast as early as the berserker, people with special powers before they became outlaws. How does this duality map out in those prose texts? How do wolves feature in Good to Grass, and how does the wolfman shift identity between victim and despot, and vice versa? How is he represented in the context of the wild hunt myth, and how does he survive and resist persecution and annihilation, and how does he become a tool for parody? The Tin Drum and the Nazi and the Barber share that the Homo Sacer resorts to mimicry as divined by critics uh, like homie Baba in the sense that the persecuted individual mimics the beast as despot as ubermensch thus being able to escape and subvert the power of the latter by resorting to the picaresque genre grass and hilsenrath are able to produce effects of parody and humor the roguish blasphemers we encountered in the 17th century reappear after 1945 with even more convalesque intensity in view of this dimension of humor uh, had his homo sacer become a catalyst for revealing the past and coming to terms with trauma um yeah i 
mean, the uh, uh, <laughs> just a lot of interesting yeah, stuff going I mean, on there. Uh, was, the literary it, stuff at the end, maybe not so he was much. Interested but in like the uh, yeah. you know the same idea of like the berserker, you know, the idea of uh, someone who could transform. You know, of course, in, like this Germanic uh, archetype almost of uh, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, he basically, uh, or Hitler, that is, kind of, like, was someone who would have been, like, be imagining, like, a heroic version of, of Peter Stoom, or, or Peter Stube, the wolf-esque serial killer who could transform into this wolf state and uh, just unleash his uh, animal instincts uh, for the sake of the Volk. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, uh, the idea of, like, the... Mm-hmm the horde i don't know if that was the author's kind of editorializing or an idea that was hitler's own or was part of that discourse itself but it's an interesting parallel with like the idea of the canine races as a kind of a historical trope yeah and I, I i had kind of forgotten about i definitely looked into it before but the Verwolf organization that was set up in 1944 is like basically really kind of sounds like i think a lot of people have described it as kind of the seed unit of what would become gladio's like stay behind units and probably a lot of the same people were involved in it and uh, of course they did under the creation of goebbels uh, created radio Verwolf, which then was like taken as nicholas shrek and xena levey's like cool totally not (laughs) nazi ban in the 80s uh you know and but also i just looked at on the wikipedia you could see that their their rune that they have and that is something that you see all over the place nowadays on like with like you know 8chan nazis or whatever or people on like white supremacists today a lot of them rock like the Verwolf model and if you really think about like the structure of like lone wolf terrorism and stuff like that i think even one of those crazy kind of like mk mass shooters from a few years ago he kept photoshopping the symbol from a video game called Mm -hmm. berserker i forget which game it was onto like his head and the heads of like his enemies so the guy who shot up like a newsroom in like maryland or something like that and he was like obsessed uh, with this berserker video game and if you think about like a lone, lone wolf, wolf yeah. terrorism like the guy who did like the christchurch mm-hmm. shooting like he was an absolute verbal he probably thought of himself yeah. as a verbal mm-hmm. honestly and i think um i think people like otto scorzani and like some of those really notorious like post-war nazi war criminals that ended up like working for the cia uh and being yeah like plugged into gladio and everything like they all got their start in werewolf but i'd never heard it described before as they started a werewolf cult Mm -hmm. which i shouldn't maybe surprise me all that much given the nazis and like ss people being basically like satanic cultists uh more or less but that you know uh, that they they not only kind of adopted this uh yeah this like kind of uh persona or this like label or brand as like a werewolf but that somehow they were like doing rituals to like turn themselves into werewolves or mm-hmm. something like that like very um it hints at a mu- I, I like to read more into like the occult aspect that they injected into the werewolf thing because also you know they they ended up having an impact in the post-war world and some of them were brought over probably to america and then you start to plug all these things together and you're like they're what if there were like nazi werewolf people in america that well the imagery know, well I mean, yeah well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the, Im- the imagery is like of the wolf among sheep you know like the werewolf like uh folklorically is this mm-hmm. uh you know even in our current like uh hollywood mythos of like the wolf man like the lawn cheney type wolf man you know, it's someone who, it's a wolf who hides in plain yeah. sight. You know, he seems like a normal guy, and then, like, he wolfs out. The, mm-hmm. the whole idea yep. of the bear wolf 
is that, you know, even in other contexts, you know, it's someone who can conceal themselves, who acts like within the community, you know, there's this uh, threat from within, you know, where the Kuno Ballets maybe, or the Kuno Cephali mm-hmm. are, they're without, you know, they're beyond uh, you know, the walls, uh, they're with Gog and Magog or uh, whatever. The variable mm-hmm. a lot of the time is, is within, you know, stalking. He's there. And that was a really real concern when the Allies kind of, you know, uh, liberated Europe, both in the Soviet and to an extent the American side, that they probably really mitigated their variable threat by just like hiring all of them. So, uh, but yeah, there were some, there was some rounding up going on. Uh, Beria did an authoritarianism and I think like, mm-hmm. uh, like yeah, uh, executed right. like 600, uh, poten- uh suspected variables. So Beria on the right side of the, on the right side of the satanic appropriate reaction. Right. Yeah. The satanic necessary reaction yeah, satanic of, of 1946. Reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah um, yeah so uh so yeah i mean this is a kind of a creepy thing and then you think about like uh, you know these uh, these allegations that like very like rich and prominent people not just teenagers were doing like occult rituals around the kind of uh this county where bray road was and all this kind of stuff and you know the guy from i, I wonder if the guy who created D- dungeons and dragons was like living there when he created dungeons and dragons or if he kind of it seems like a place maybe some people kind mm-hmm. of retire to because it's like a peaceful lake and and all that stuff but it seems to be yeah. very affluent and uh and then that haunted graveyard like just kind of a yeah. real nexus yeah you don't usually think of wisconsin as a super spooky place yeah. but um I'm, I'm kind of familiar with that state and i never got like a never got like a real spooky vibe uh from the little time i spent there but uh i guess you know i think i did maybe even i've known people that are from this county uh, and some of the cities around in it, but I never heard anything. I never heard about a dog man or anything else. Mm. So, you know, it's a, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of like for, I guess there is forest because that's where all this stuff happened. But in a lot of like Wisconsin and those Midwestern States, maybe you kind of think like maybe the reason they have less cryptozoological encounters is because it's just open fields mm. everywhere. There's not a lot of mountains or, you know, valleys or like dark little pockets where you can have a kind of liminal, yeah encounter but yeah, i mean i guess I yeah an interesting aspect is the idea of these places is like being cultivated deliberately yeah that there's i mean that these the reason mm. why because i mean it is a unique aspect i mean uh we didn't we'll talk about this in bigfoot too but you know teddy roosevelt the creator of the national park system had his own i don't I guess it's not his own bigfoot encounter but he did relay a bigfoot story of his own you know that's a little bit uh tangential to mm. the particular occult connection because of course the wolf is a much more uh sinister uh animal in its connotations as we talked about uh, and i think we'll get deeper into after uh you know, in the next hour of the show before uh, wrapping up, but yeah. Um. Uh, oh, oh. By the way, by the way, were you aware? We can take a break in a second, but I just realized that one of the beaches on Lake Geneva is called Bigfoot Beach mm, State Park. Uh. Yeah. The Lakeside Shore Path is dotted with Gilded Age mansions, many built by wealthy Chicagoans. Mm. 
and uh, the the 19th century Black Point Black Point Estate and Gardens was the summer home of Chicago beer magnate Conrad Sipe. Maybe there's a little hmm. I don't know. There, there there's a so this is what you know, all these Chicago people are obsessed with spiritualism and the occult and shit. Especially I would imagine maybe some of the rich people and they've been going up there for over a hundred years and how long they've been building it. The other thing that I noticed that was interesting about this entire. Uh, county walworth county that was just mentioned like incidentally was that it's kind of like ethnic background is relatively kind of a standout and it's quite different than most of the rest of wisconsin which is like very heavily like german american and scandinavian american like swedish and norwegian people is what most of the counties in wisconsin uh, are are like particularly the more rural ones but this one is like mostly um anglo-saxon and I guess was settled maybe a little bit mm. earlier. So it even like, I don't know, the most prominent people, it said that the voting patterns, yeah, owing to its owing to its Yankee heritage, which contrasts with the German-American or Scandinavian character of most Wisconsin, Walworth County was initially a stronghold of the Free Soil Party. It voted for Martin Van Buren and John P. Hale in Wisconsin's first two presidential elections, and its oper- opposition to the spread of slavery meant it became Republican in subsequent elections, even resisting the appeal of Wisconsin native Robert La Follette when he carried the state in 1924. And it's still very Republican, but like Yankee uh, Republican. And uh, the only Democrats ever, I guess, in the 20th century, yeah, nobody's actually won it, I think, since Woodrow Wilson in 1912. LBJ and Barack Obama got 48%. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Bill Clinton are the only other Democrats since Wilson to get more than 40 percent of the vote, uh, though Joe Biden got close. So interesting kind of. Yeah, just like it's it's it stands out a little bit in, in multiple ways from like the rest of the state of Wisconsin. So it really makes you makes you wonder. Mm, yes. And oh, yeah. Bigfoot Prairie. The Maybe when we get back, we could talk about like why are things named Bigfoot in well, this I county? Think that, Bigfoot, uh, that seems well, t- you know, Bigfoot weird. is a name that was attributed to like a lot of Native Americans like went by the name Bigfoot like before, as we talked about in Bigfoot. <laughs> that's so true, that's possibly yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason. But yeah, I think, you know, there's still a little bit more like uh, good missing 411 stuff to get into and like a little bit of sure, sure, sure. past yeah. connections with uh some of the stuff to touch on but yeah uh there's time for some oh my god wow okay yeah so you were oh yeah we'll take we'll take a break yeah we'll take a quick break right now uh but i we will we should mention uh when i come back that uh that you're right that the beach and park were named after chief bigfoot who is the uh the potawatomi leader in the area until he was forcibly Mm. relocated but interestingly the original name of the lake itself was bigfoot Mm. lake and then it was renamed uh, Geneva Lake later. Uh, so, hmm. and they, they even have a Bigfoot Lake High School the there. Chief as well, or was it named Bigfoot? Oh, okay. I believe so. Uh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean yeah, like when did they? Uh, no, yeah, yeah. No, they, it, it was uh, John Brink, a surveyor, renamed it uh, Geneva Lake, maybe to uh, maybe to like appeal to the bougie mm, yeah, Chicagoans. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, around yeah, when did he rename yeah, okay. it? Okay. It doesn't quite i'll I'll have to look through this uh article right here oh my god no okay okay (sighs) bigfoot high school is located at 401 devil's lane in walworth wisconsin Uh, there's actually a whole book that david polides may uh wrote called uh missing 401 devils in the details which is like all about mysterious appearances and places named 
like after the devil well you know like of course like the you know these places are named oh that for God. a reason like it's usually because there's some association like there's this like yeah. really horrible like dense patch of wilderness in massachusetts called like literally called satan's kingdom you know the puritans what? like you know were not messing around when they named it that yeah fair enough mm-hmm. fair enough and uh, you know the the largest uh the, the largest mountain in it's technically a mountain in the east san francisco bay area that i basically grew up in the shadow of you know what it's called what? mount diablo yeah i mean probably devil mountain it's Devil Mountain because it has it kind of has two little peaks a little bit like one's higher than the other. But I guess the Spanish settlers or I don't know where they got it from, but they decided it looked like Devil Horns. So they called it Mount Diablo. And, you know, people just don't even think about how it's called Devil Mountain. It's just like, oh, Mount yeah. Diablo. You know what I mean? Like, but it's like sus like a little bit, you know, like why is there a Devil Mountain leering over us? Right. I don't know if there's anything spooky. It's I mean, happened. if it it's probably called Mount Diablo, been. it's probably but, because um, either like yeah. it was at one time considered to be really dangerous or associated with something demonic. Uh, I mean, was it ever volcanic like that would maybe yeah. make sense? Yeah. Uh, not for a very long time, maybe to like ten thousand years ago, but like not. If I don't know, I, I should check if it's a if it's tight, like a dormant volcano. But it's you know, it doesn't look like a volc. I mean, yeah, it just looks like it looks like a gigantic hill. Like it doesn't. It's not like an extreme mountain, but it's just sort of plopped in the middle of the uh, East Bay, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's got a little like secondary peak. It's kind of pointy and devilish. So yeah. reminded of that movie Wolfen that, you know, was based on the Whitley Stryber novel. And I was looking it up, you know, uh, remembering the plot, because uh, I remember that there was sort of a similar scene almost to the scene in Communion, where there's like that alien kind of peering through uh, his doorway. And, uh, you know, we talked pre- in a previous mm-hmm. episode about some of the sus uh, connections uh, or the sus uh, ideas at play in Whitley Stryber's work. And one of the uh, interesting things in the novel mm-hmm. is there's, uh, you know, this uh, key part where they have this strange paw print that they collect from a window that's, you know, too high for, a, like, you know, a dog to have reached. You know, it's too ominous. It's this dog sort of pawing at the window, which is a really mm-hmm. common image in uh, dogman stories. You know, it's often like where people encounter these dogmen uh you know actually something that we didn't mention yet is the steve cook song about dogmen which i think actually oh yeah might be the origin of the name dogmen but it's a weird situation because according to him okay 
So basically, like, I think it was in in 1987, like, in the spring of 1987 that he wrote this song. He's, like, a radio... He was working in radio, like, in Michigan, right? Yeah, this is the whole, like, Michigan dogman thing. It was in the spring of 1987, and uh, his producer, I guess, came to him and was like, we're trying to think of an April Fool's joke. So he sat down and wrote this song, like, uh, you know, in a, like, some kind of uh, regular verse. Um and about basically a bunch of different sightings that I guess he just fabricated of Dogman, basically. And they he made, like, a little, mm-hmm. like, Casio keyboard song out of it called The Legend. But, yeah. you know, it turned out mm-hmm. that he had stumbled upon an actual legend because once they aired the song, people were, uh, you know, always calling in. But even in that song, you know, one of the... I'll try to find the lyrics to it, but I remember there's one part mm-hmm. of of that song where in six, you know, the whole idea is that uh, dogmen always come in the song. You know, this isn't like a real dogman lore so much outside of like what has been perpetuated by the song itself. But the idea in the song is that, you know, with it coming out in 1987, it's the idea that every 10 years in the years that end in seven, mm-hmm. a dogmen like prowl and, and do evil dogmen type things, you know, and there are some, of course, the number seven does have oh magical God. associations. You know, sometimes you hear the idea that like the seventh son of a seventh son will be a werewolf or something like that. But anyway, in the song he wrote in 67, a van load of hippies told a park ranger named Quinlan they've been awakened in the night by a scratch at the window. There was a dogman looking in and grinning. <laughs> I guess and grinning, rhyming with Quinlan, not. Uh, but that is actually like a common image that you hear in a lot of uh-huh. these stories, like a werewolf or a dogman appearing at the window and just kind of scratching at it. Even in uh, in one of our Q and A episodes a while ago, we talked about some of these Wendigo stories, and that's also a common trope, like the you know the idea of the skinwalker. Yeah, I think the the skinwalker often, you know, these uh, the the villain in these kind of ghost stories will always be standing outside and kind of scratching at the window mm-hmm. you know which is interesting in light of the whole liminal uh aspect of these but the whole aspect of the window actually kind of reminded me of a story that was in a book about werewolves by montague summers who i feel like maybe we should do like a whole episode on at some mm-hmm. point because he was kind of like the anti uh crowley you know they were contemporary sort of uh okay. and when, while crowley was like you know i'm the great beast like i'm the modern day like witch his whole thing was like i'm the modern day like witch hunter yeah. you know he was still like uh you know big medievalist like a catholic i think yeah he wrote a lot of books about vampires and werewolves and things like that one of his books uh was mm. just called werewolves i, I believe or, or the werewolf yeah i have it on archive.org here mm. uh under the title the werewolf and lore and legend but uh, I'm not sure if that's the original title because uh, okay. he definitely believed that they existed. So uh, you know, I think that he thought that this information mm-hmm. was uh, useful uh, in in that respect. But you know, there's a story in here. I've been trying to find it. Uh, yeah, I, I looked it up on on Google and I found a reference to it. Uh, that there's basically uh, the story is something along the lines of there is a, a man or a professor who finds like the skeleton of a werewolf uh, or an odd skeleton with a dog head, an extremely large dog like beast. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he takes it home and then his wife sort of sees the image of this werewolf leering in through the window. That's one of the stories he tells. I wish I could find it, but there is a lot of interesting stuff in here that reminded me of the uh, Hitler connection. Uh, and this will dovetail as well into some mm-hmm. of the 411 stuff. 
which is the you know obvious connection between the werewolves and shepherds you know he quotes this saying oh i never thought about that like like christ is the shepherd and the wolf is Uh, mm, right he quotes this anglo-saxon text therefore must be the shepherds very watchful and diligently crying out who have to shield the people against the spoiler such as the bishops and mass priests who are to preserve and defend their spiritual flocks with wise destructions that the madly audacious werewolf do not so widely devastate nor bite too many of the spiritual flock. So, yeah, it's a, a, okay. a connection there. There's a, a little bit more on the uh, the point of, of shepherds uh, that he uh, brings up. He writes, uh, uh, where is it? He's talking about vampires here. Uh, he's saying a vampire is an altogether different thing from a werewolf, but I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Uh, you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, do see a little bit of, of conflation there, but I guess this is a part of a longer thing, but he uh, describes, C'est sont des hommes vivants, une près une sorte de somnambulisme qui s'assit par les strophes de carnage sur toutes les nuits de l'us hutes de bergers. So I guess these men go into a kind of sleepwalking yeah living man subject to a weird somnambulism and sends them forth ravening uh you know particularly when the moon is out so he says Mm -hmm. here too the connection between shepherds and the werewolves is striking amongst other shepherds who were proved to be to werewolfery there is a notorious case of pierre burgot and michel verdon a couple of lycanthrope sorcerers who were tried at bescanon uh, Bess, uh, Bessanson, sorry, in December 1521, my classic problem with French, and sentenced to be burned alive by the Inquisitor General, Frère Jean Bon. Yeah, that shepherd mm-hmm. connection, which, you know, that itself reminded me a little bit of some of the 411 stuff uh, that I was reading earlier today, because there's also like a little bit mm-hmm. of a shepherd connection that comes up in this. Yeah, very okay. odd. But it does kind of appear. So something that is like recurrent in these 411 stories is that the dogs can't pro- like properly track the scent of okay. anything of the missing person, or uh, or they won't, or for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, they refuse to. I guess you know people aren't able to determine uh, why, but uh, for whatever reason they won't. So. There's this one guy. They, they won't track yeah, they the won't. scent of uh, But anyway, okay. this is a story from Utah. And I guess, yeah, this guy uh, was a sheep herder. And uh, I'll read the incident, and then I'll read uh, some of his commentary. Okay. So this incident is centered on a region in the very far southwestern portion of Utah. Paragona is a very small city, 20 miles from Bryce and Zion National Park, and 40 miles north of the Arizona border. The incident oh. occurred in a region 20 miles south of Paragona near the Cottonwood Canyon. The location is approximately four miles from Cane Point. This isn't the only story about sheep herders that I have ever encountered. Missing 411, Eastern United States is an entire chapter dedicated to sheep herders that have vanished under unusual circumstances. Uh, The Robb family uh, was sheep herders, and the two brothers had the responsibility to take care of the herd. Articles spelled the name of the victim in the story two different ways, Marlon and Marion. For consistency in the story, I will call her Marlon. Something had been stealing sheep belonging to the Robs, and the boys had decided to ride out, separate, and look for the culprit. Marlon had told his brother that he had seen a coyote and was going to ride out and kill it. This was the last time Marlon was seen. A June 8, 1926 article in the Billings Gazette had the following headline. 
Hounds to seek youth likely taken by beast. I guess this happened in the 20s. When Marlin didn't return, Marlin's brother had ridden mm -hmm. out to find his brother and found his horse. There was blood in the saddle, and his brother's hat was sitting on the saddle horn. The brother searched further and found a location where he believed his brother had sat down. There was more blood in his brother's rifle. He searched into the night and couldn't find Marlin. He rode back to the community and asked for assistance. The family had some type of political connections, because articles state that Utah Governor George Dern sent special bloodhounds to the area to assist in the effort to find Marlin. Teams went back to the area where Marlin's brother had found blood and the rifle, and in a region further away from that scene, searchers found Marlin's knife and parts of his clothing saturated in blood. There were two sites where it appeared that Marlin had sat and rested. The rifle that was found was still loaded. A June 8, 1926 article in the Salt Lake Tribune explained what happened when the bloodhounds came into the scene. Bloodhounds were put in the scent, and the animals appeared to be bewildered and could not follow the scent. Hundreds of men have joined in the hunt and covered every foot of ground in the Cottonwood Canyon for a radius of 25 miles with no trace of the missing boy than his knife and gun in the clots of blood where they were found. The search for Marlin went on for weeks, with upward of 1,000 men from throughout the state participating in the effort to find the sheep herder. After almost three weeks of intensive searching with bloodhounds from all different parts of the state and many woodsmen and other sheep herders, Marlin was not found and the search was terminated. In late October 1933, uh, deer hunter Archie Lamareux was in an area six miles from the 1926 Rob sheep herding camp when he made an unusual find. Archie found bits of clothing, bits of shoes, and a partial skeleton. The remains were turned over to the sheriff, who identified the remains as Marlin. There was no information on the terrain where the body was found or the condition of the remains, and there was never a statement on the cause of death. So... This is Polite's commentary on this. Hmm. So, the entire event is mired in confusing information. Some articles state that Marlin vanished 20 miles northwest of Paragona. Some say southwest. Cottonwood Canyon is southwest. Some articles state it was Marlin who was lost. Uh, sorry, some say it was Marion who was lost. Some say Marlin. I find it very, very unusual the newspaper articles mention the strange behavior of the bloodhounds refusing to track. Again, unusual behavior by canines plays a major role in a disappearance. I know that some of you may feel that a cougar or a bear took down Marlin. I don't think so. The boy was able to get to two different locations and rest, and his rifle was still <laughs> loaded. Why would a predator take on a formidable target like a human on a horse when there were hundreds of helpless sheep to victimize? I find it very unusual that search teams knew the exact location mm -hmm. where Marlin had rested and bled and were still unable to get dogs to track. That is true. I find that odd as well. Another very confusing bloodhounds. They have mm. a shirt covered in blood. Okay. And the bloodhounds won't track it. Anyway, they're confused. Right, well, anyway, uh, another very confusing point. The story deals with Marlin's last known location. Trackers are experts at finding people who have left tracks, especially in the woods. The June eighth, uh, nineteen twenty six article in the Salt Lake Tribune had a sectional title: "Tracks Missing," with the following statement. Men who are familiar with tracking animals and men have been active, but have failed to find a trace of track leaving the spots where the missing boy had evidently sat down. There was some conjecture in news articles that sheep or other animals may have obliterated the tracks. Very, very doubtful. Uh, I mean, maybe. I don't know. The newspaper doesn't place a statement in an article like that unless <laughs> it bothered the trackers on the scene. Marlin wasn't the only victim of this incident. One year after he disappeared, his father died of extreme heartbreak from missing his boy. The entire event bothered me immensely. Tracks don't disappear, and bloodhounds don't arbitrarily decide not to track. 
the June 8th, 1926 article and Billings Gazette article talked about using hounds to seek a, quote, beast. I think if we knew what the quote-unquote beast was, we'd understand what happened to Marlin. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, I'm looking into this region a little bit, and it it's kind of interesting because there is... There seem to be, like, two different Cottonwood Canyons in Utah. I guess there's maybe Cottonwood Canyon and then Big Cottonwood Canyon, which is closer to Salt Lake City, so I don't think it's the same one because this one's down in yeah, southern Utah, apparently, right? but actually it's unclear because there's yeah, some confusion. Near Paragona, yeah, near Paragona, right? Is what, yeah, he, he says, yeah. Uh, yeah, also I see here uh, that there's uh, there's another name for it. I don't know if this is a name for the canyon itself or like a sub-canyon called Second Left Hand Canyon. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh? Left Hand, interesting. Yeah, and also I noticed that even though it's not the same, it is interesting that the big Cottonwood Canyon closer up to uh, Salt Lake City, there were two little-known slasher films called ice wow, and berserker that, is odd. that were shot in the canyon mm. in the 1980s yeah yeah berserker the plot of berserker is about a group of campers who are stalked and murdered <laughs> by a viking berserker according to an old nordic legend a berserker was a bloodthirsty warrior yes. who ate human flesh was forbidden a restful death and fated to be reincarnated in their blood kin and i guess they, uh, the summer camp stumbles upon the ber- berserker legend when it arises in rainbow valley an area settled by norwegian immigrants oh kind of like wisconsin the camp is abuzz with rumors of a wild bear killing people in the area including speculation about an old couple who got lost but is it really a bear uh, wow um that's even if it's not the same it's still a little creepy um and then iced you know he first he chills them then the he whole kills issue them of, like the, the mistaken line. identity of the bear and, uh, like the same tropes like you know uh, definitely present uh-huh. uh yeah, yeah, and also uh, interesting um, in the okay in, in the one in the the original uh, Cottonwood Canyon in Iron County near Cedar City, uh, they just found a sixty-eight-year-old man uh, who died there in February of this year. Apparently, he went out there to go off-roading or four-wheeling, and then uh, disappeared. And then two days later, they found the body and, uh, quote, the, uh, the SWAT team members who located him said there did not appear to be anything suspicious about the death at this time. I guess. Hmm. Like, what? Well, what, what? I don't know. How did he die? Uh, oh, how like, about this? Okay. The, suspicious, how, yeah, 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 exactly. Like Here, okay. How about, okay. okay, yeah, you ready for it? And this is this is from stgeorgeutah.com, the local newspaper. So it's not missing 411, but uh, apparently uh, Carpenter, who I think was, uh, let me see, uh, this is the sheriff of Iron County. So we know, we, know, we know not to trust sheriffs, right? They're political figures, often the okay, biggest gangsters yeah, in these, uh, these rural areas. But so he's the one who said, yeah, like the way he said was, uh, uh, as originally reported by Cedar City News, Iron County Sheriff Ken Carpenter said authorities spent the day Tuesday searching for Barry Blake, who was last seen by a friend on Monday. When search efforts were suspended at dusk Tuesday, Carpenter said they were planning to resume on Wednesday, and he contacted Cedar City News mid-morning Wednesday to say Blake's body had been located. And he said, quote, the SWAT team members who located him said there did not appear to be anything suspicious 
about the death at this time. On Tuesday, Carpenter said the friend had dropped off Blake and his four-wheeler in the area Monday afternoon, planning to pick up Blake at a designated spot later. When he, quote, when he came back to get him, he wasn't there, but he didn't really worry too much about it. That was yesterday afternoon sometime, Carpenter said. But then he never showed back up, and so about around 2.30 this morning, they reported it and paged out search and rescue. Later Tuesday morning, searchers were able to locate the missing man's off-road vehicle with the help of a helicopter crew. Quote, his four-wheeler was stuck, but it was still running, which we thought was odd, Carpenter said, but he wasn't in the area of it. Personnel from multiple agencies, including the Metro SWAT team, had been assisting in the search, Carpenter said. The temperatures the first night were reasonably warm for this time of year, he said, but Tuesday night and into Wednesday morning was expected to be colder. Quote, we probably aren't going to be as fortunate with the weather conditions tonight as we were last night, so there's always a concern. Search efforts were suspended at dusk Tuesday night. The area where Blake went missing is just a few miles east of the Lunt Park rest stop on Interstate 15, Carpenter noted. Quote, if he came down out of the canyon, he could reasonably get down to that Lunt Park rest area, Carpenter said. He's from Parowan, so he's certainly familiar with the area. Anyone who have seen Blake, who may have seen Blake at any point between when he went missing and when he was found is asked to contact the sheriff's office. Huh. So yeah, even the even the sheriff acknowledging quite odd. They're not saying that like he crashed his four wheeler and like flew off and then like died. Still, which would like, seem like after you a read all that, I'm unclear to, like to what die is out the there? idea that happened and how like because if it's not suspicious, it, well, you'd think it would be very cut and dry. Like well, obviously. What, it, what happened? Like, how'd he die? Like, he fell out? Well, uh, you well, uh, talk to the person. Okay, Let me so check, like, because, I didn't I mean, miss I guess, something. Like, you also don't quite know. Like, at, th- at this time... So how is that not suspicious? Here we go. Okay, I, I think maybe we found uh, an obituary from him. Let me see. Yeah, Barry, Barry J. Blake passed away on February 10th, 2021 in Iron County, Utah. Raised in Cedar City, um, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and served in the USA and Germany for five years. He was a truck driver and auto mechanic. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really say what he died of. Okay, uh, yeah, this just popped up on, like, the first page of a Google search that might be a little interesting. Uh, on a registry of registered sex offenders and kidnappers. I'm seeing here Barry J. Blake, same birth date, 1952. Offense statute, May 2002, sodomy what? on a child, attempted first degree felony. He's, he was a pedo. Um, <laughs> he was a registered sex offender and a pedophile uh, who went out there four wheeling. They have a the, a booking photo of him. He is he's a pretty rough looking, oof, uh, pretty rough looking guy. Uh, I guess he lived he lived in Parowan, which is another nearby city. Yeah, wow. Okay, uh, I guess they wouldn't put that in the family obituary, but registered sex offender goes out four-wheeling dies mysteriously and then um nobody says kind of yeah what but it's not suspicious but yeah it sounds like it's not suspicious it's not suspicious, it's not suspicious. So i guess like, maybe there, uh, there probably wasn't any foul play like it was probably an accident but all right yeah i think that's what they i think that's what they mean but also like it's not it's suspicious in the sense of like what the hell like well like well, how did he die like i mean i guess they could say that like okay he, he went on monday and then he didn't show up. So, like, he went missing Monday afternoon. And then they looked for him on Tuesday. And they they couldn't 
I think even on early Monday morning, because I called it in at like 2.30, or sorry, early Tuesday morning, like 2.30 a.m., they called it in. So they had all of Tuesday to look for him, and they couldn't find him. And then they called it off because it was a little cold that night. So, like, maybe you could say, oh, if something happened to him, uh, he might freeze to death the, the following night. But it didn't sound like it was, like, so cold on the first night that it was, like, freezing necessarily it was like unseasonably warm and the four-wheeler was still running and he his body was found not near it so like it would doesn't really make sense if he like crashed it that he would leave it on but then like not just be found nearby it like he got flung off Mm -hmm. of it or something you know what i mean it's weird it's like he he maybe he crashed it and then he went wandering for a while but like I don't know. Like it was stuck, but it was still running, which we thought was odd, but he wasn't in the area of it. I mean, uh, yeah. So like they, they found on Tuesday morning, they found the off-road vehicle and then it was, I guess another 24 hours before they found his body. So it must've not really not been near it. Right. I mean, it kind of sound, they're not being very specific, but you know, he must've been like hidden away or like a distance from it. So then was he, so did he see something and get so terrified that he just hopped off of his four wheeler and start running and then, um, well, but I guess in this him? case, maybe the dog man was just applying the hot punishment as necessary since this guy was a pedo, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know. It is, like, another interesting, like, I mean, it's not, in this case, you know, if we're, you know, speculating uh, that this is Dogman related, uh, you know, a lot of this is, like, uh, in terms of the missing 411 type stuff, like, a lot of the stories are about, like, young people who get taken by animals that people, like, assume are bears or wolves. Like, this is, like, you know, I... I read the uh, big dog story. I think Katie Flynn was the name of the the girl in the Bigfoot episode with the mm-hmm. one with the berries. She was young. You weren't too impressed by that story. This is another one, you know, and it's in a place. Actually, it's called mm-hmm. uh, Devil's Canyon, I think. Oh, boy. Here we go. We got Devil's yeah, Lane, so Devil's is, Canyon. Uh, okay. You know, uh, William Dunphy's daughter. You know, again, this is from like a century ago. So, you know, it was an infant. We don't know her actual name because like, you know, pe- children's full names weren't published like, at the time. And I don't know if even they still are when something happens to an infant. But anyway, it's in Montana, out, uh, the hills outside of Ewing, Montana. So Ewing is now a ghost town in southern Montana, mm-hmm. just 10 miles north of Wyoming. There is one building in the town that has supposedly been renovated for a local park ranger. The scenery around the town is gorgeous, high peaks and big mountains. As an interesting side note, as you are driving toward Ewing, there is a turn at a location called Devil's Canyon where the city can be seen. I found a city, uh, sorry, I found a series of articles describing this event with uh, the first being near the beginning of September 1903. The articles state that on approximately September 2nd, 1903, the William Dunphy family was living in the hills above Ewing while Mr. Dunphy was prospecting. According to another article, the Clinton Morning, August 23rd, 1903, the infant daughter was carried off one afternoon by a wild animal. There was no information on the type of animal that carried off the girl, but there was information that there was an extensive search. The same article quoted above uh, described what Dunphy was doing after the daughter vanished. While Dunphy was hunting in the mountains, he came on a wolf den, Mm -hmm. which showed signs of being occupied. He waited for a long time, then entered as no wolf came forth. He decided to enter the den and see for himself what was in it. 
As he entered the place, he heard the cry of a child. Advancing, he saw a sight that almost turned his hair white. Lying on a bed of grass at the end of the den was a big mother wolf with several pups beside her, while at her side was his lost baby, trying her best to get a supper from the mother wolf. The wolf simply frowned when the man approached and made no attempt to escape. Dunphy got his daughter back. She wasn't injured and was supposedly well-nourished. Newspapers in Red Lodge, Montana had the story validated by two other residents of Ewing. There was never any other clarity as to the size of the wolf or other specific details of the recovery. So, this is David Pilates' little note. I've written about other young girls that were supposedly taken by something that mm -hmm. was described as a large wolf or bear. This is the first article I ever found where an adult got a close view of the abductor. Just in case you were not aware, news articles in the late 1800s and early 1900s did not usually include children's names and articles. Right, that's why, uh, you know, just explaining himself. Mm -hmm. I view the location of this incident as unique and important. Ewing was a remote city. The Dunfees lived in the hills outside the city, extremely remote. In Missing 411 Western United States, I wrote about other incidents involving children taken in Montana by mammals described as wolves or bears. Unfortunately, uh, that book is not online, so I don't have it. But that is an mm -hmm. interesting story, regardless of whether it's true. I mean, I guess there were people who verified it. I mean, it could be just like a, a fanciful tale, like to amuse people, like at the turn of the century, like about like a, you know, a girl mm -hmm. being raised by wolves. But it's still an interesting story, you know, it reminds you of like this classic idea of like, uh, you know, a child being adopted by wolves, you know, uh, the Romulus and Remus, you know? Yeah. 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 Goes I mean, way back. Absolutely. It is odd. Like if it's real, you know, there are all these stories about this type of thing happening. Like what is going on where people are taken by these animals, like things that people think are bears and then, or I say they are, and then like the kids yeah. are totally unharmed and just like found later. Like what is going on? It's really weird. Do we have, does Breaking Form one ever kind of, or missing foreign one ever um, get into, <clears throat> I don't know. Is there any other kind of thing told by especially these children that get kidnapped that were like, I was taken on a UFO, like I, there were doctors experimenting on, you know what I mean? Like, is there other stuff or it's like they just, they're too young to even like articulate what happened to them or they say it's like some kind of animal is it always kind of like an anim more animal style um, thing that happens to I'm them? I'm trying to think if there's like any kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's just like. Because some of the missing born ones do go into like, oh, like somebody like he recounts. He, he retells the stories of other people saying that there was like a beast and, you know, yeah. like, like or that story you just read. <laughs> You know, there's a big mother wolf like there, like, uh, you know, so I wonder, is there other things or is this all part of his like secret Bigfoot agenda to like? Uh, I think, think that it definitely does know. have um, to do with like, uh, the like, you know, uh, Bigfoot agenda that's uh, happening uh, is going on here. Um, mm -hmm. But there is like an art in some cases, it's just like. Uh, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, strange beast type stories, but there are some that are just, like, weird. Like, uh, let me see if I can find the, uh, the one. This is another weird one that popped out at me, maybe because of the name and some of the details of the story, which doesn't really have any kind of, like, mm -hmm. cryptid element except for maybe the name itself. So this is about Edith Wolfskill. Wolf's Kill. All right. So no, she lived okay. uh, on a rural ranch in the mountains near Fairfield, California. Uh, she went missing in 1959, that is. 
at uh, age so 57. That's yeah. near Vacaville. With her brother, mm, it's even weirder okay. than that. With her brother Matthew and their housekeeper. The ranch was located near what is now Lake Berryessa and 18 miles from Puta Creek. It was claimed in the community oh, yeah. that Edith was mentally unstable. A July 22, 1959 article in the Berkeley Daily Gazette had the following information. Edith Irene Wolfskill, insane, self-styled empress of the world, was still missing today. This statement in the newspaper clearly indicated that even Mrs. Wolfskill made outrageous claims about herself. Mrs. Wolfskill was last seen in the afternoon hours of July 14th when she told her housekeeper she was going to go for her walk at her rural Solano County ranch. She never returned. In the same Berkeley Daily Gazette article, that was the following about her disappearance. It was rumored that Sheriff Thornton, who had steadfastly maintained that the woman was kidnapped, would go to Los Angeles to quiz a former nurse. The contact with the nurse was made after a comprehensive 10-day search for Edith didn't find anything. The sheriff had a series of police dogs search the ranch for a viable scent, but they also couldn't find her. This case had all sorts of intrigue. There were articles that stated that Edith's brothers were fighting over her estate and arguing about who would manage the money. There were other rumors that she committed suicide, and still others that an angry ex-employee had killed her while she was on her walk. Since Edith was a prominent and wealthy community figure, this case brought lots of press and a committed effort by law enforcement to solve the case. The family posted a $5,000 reward through a Los Angeles bank for the return of Edith, alive or dead. You know, it's in 1959. Uh, nearly three months after Edith vanished, 18-year-old Donald mm -hmm. Glasshoff, son of a local rancher, was traveling down a remote dry creek bed in Wooden Valley and found a body approximately one and a half miles from the Wolfskill residence. The female body was dressed in men's overalls and laying face down with the legs dangling over a slight hill. Donald contacted his father, who called the sheriff, then identified the body as Edith Wolfskill. A September 20th article in the Woodland Democrat had the following information about finding Edith's body. The dry creek in which the body was found, said C.S. Perry, deputy sheriff today, was thoroughly searched at least 50 times. It was never the same posse that did the search, either. It is puzzling to Sheriff Jack Thornton and myself how the body could have been there throughout the intensive search without someone stumbling onto it. Instead of solving the disappearance of July 14th, the discovery deepens the mystery, for there were indications that she had been murdered. Articles all clarified that Edith's clothes had been changed from the time she had last been seen at her ranch. It was clear that the men's overalls uh, uh, that the men's overalls that Edith was wearing were not hers. The sheriff searched the area around the body and found a pair of low-heeled shoes that she had been wearing at the time she vanished. The shoes were found in a small creek-slash-hollow 100 yards from the body. Edith's body was sent to the coroner's office for an autopsy. It was the opinion of pathologists that Edith had been alive for one week after she vanished. The Meriden Daily Journal had information about the cause of death. Dr. Uh, Berger and Moody performed an autopsy yesterday and both admitted they found no sign that death had come by violence. The doctor's finding is highly unusual since the sheriff had stated he felt there were signs of a homicide. After Edith was found, Sheriff John R. Thornton came forward, mm -hmm. stating that he had a report from rancher Charles Stewart that in the vicinity where the bodies was found, he saw a woman picking blackberries in the underbrush two weeks after the heiress vanished from her ranch. When he ran to the spot, he said she had vanished. That probably came up because he was searching for berry picking related uh, things. Because he, he seems okay. to have certain things that he like searches <laughs> yeah. for because they have to do with maybe what Bigfoot does, like pick berries. But yeah, so <laughs> that's probably berries. why he came upon that story. But he still wow. printed it, even though uh, it doesn't actually necessarily have a clear connection other than that. Just the weird thing of like the men's overalls 
and not knowing like who murdered her. There's also tons of stories where the kid or whoever disappears just never comes back, like the Dennis Martin story. You know, there's all there the Dennis Martin story still did have kind of a Bigfoot type thing. But, you know, there are stories where the person just disappears and they never come back uh, or they're found dead miles away from they're where found they dead, were. They're dead, yeah. Uh, so something, somebody... You know, something odd. Yeah. That's also... It's interesting she called herself, like, the Empress of the whole world. I feel like that was, like, a weird, like, Northern California thing around the turn of the century. I think there was, there was a very famous figure in San Francisco who yeah, called himself similar Emperor type Norton. of thing. And he basically walked around yeah. saying that he was the emperor. Yeah, and people just started kind of treating him like he was the emperor of, of the world. And, you know, it just, like, it's a colorful figure. But, yeah, I guess not not so abnormal there, even among the very rich. I mean, honestly, it's very, like, right. you know, like Sarah Winchester. Yeah, like Are you familiar with that story? Yeah. Another thing from, uh, I, that we used to go there as kids. Like, that was, like, the most fun thing yeah. to do. Like, go to the Winchester Mystery House. And she just basically apparently went insane and thought that if she kept building additions to her mansion, she would never yeah, die. Because, like, her, some spiritualists told her that. The Winchester and, uh, rifle I think she was like get her. the she ghost of confuse them by like building staircases to nowhere. And yeah, stuff. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's very sus and creepy. Kind of interesting though. The idea, like the intersection of like guilt about like the impact of like the amount of death that like the Winchester rifle enabled yeah. and like the settling the West and then feeling like like the souls of all those people are like haunting you and and your fortune and all this stuff. I guess you know capitalists were still. Uh, not you know they're still working on how to like how do we compartmentalize our egregious wealth and uh, all the human misery we've like caused around the world uh i guess in the 19th century you just start to think ghosts are at, uh, who knows maybe they still think ghosts are after them that's why yeah. they have to do like weird uh rituals in yeah. epstein's temple I, I have no idea but you know it's a it, it, it it's not a totally foreign idea to even the, the people at the very top uh you know and all that kind of stuff the idea of you know certain places being cursed yeah. I mean, who can say? I just wanted to bring up real briefly that I found like this random book from like 1926, uh, Arche Archaeological Observations North of the Rio Colorado by Neil Judd, which is uh, published by the Smithsonian's Bureau of American Ethnology. And I guess there was like this uh, archaeologist who went down to Cottonwood Canyon and excavated a bunch of it mm -hmm. in like the 19 teens and stuff. And uh, he says, uh, and, you know, there's a lot, but basically he talks about like the the cult, the Native American cultures, the, the prehistoric cultures, they called the basket makers and the cliff dwellers who both presided in Cottonwood Canyon. He found all these different caves with like broken up masonry and like pictographs like on the walls and, you know, various like leftovers from a very old civilization and um I think, you know, he said Cottonwood Canyon, like neighboring Cave Lakes Canyon, harbored migratory family groups in very early times. How long that time may be in actual years, no one can say even approximately. The basket makers were the first to arrive, as far as we know, but they were soon followed by cliff dwellers possessing a culture quite typical of their kind, yet less definitely specialized than that of their relatives throughout the San Juan drainage. Um, and, you know, he just goes on like it's basically like it, it, it's a real he has like maps of like all these cave systems. Uh, not not all of which he was able to explore but it sounds like there's like there's a lot going on in that in that uh you know uh cottonwood canyon and like might be indian burial stuff might be ritual sites like things like that and then i guess you know once the mormons came in they kind of 
might have destroyed a lot of that stuff um, or, you know, settled on top of it. But it's still, I guess, to this archaeologist, it was a very, uh, this had a very long, deep history. So, you know, to go right back to the beginning, if you're talking about people, I don't know, trying to summon certain spirits or things like that or things being haunted, uh, going all the way back to the earliest, you know, to thousands and thousands of years, who knows what's in that canyon? And maybe that guy, uh, Hmm. the sex offender who four-wheeled through it, he didn't realize it, but he fucked around and he found out some you know maybe a dog <laughs> yeah Jin, Jin dog man and got him yeah <laughs> i don't know do they still lurk in those canyons like is that yeah are there spirits i have no idea yeah, yeah. it is spooky the one spooky. the one missing for a one story i mean there's a bunch of them and it like you know there's not really anything that truly links a lot of these i mean there's certain things like the dogs not being able to track like and uh, the stories are a lot of them are eerie the one that still really sticks out to me i mean we mentioned it and we talked about it in the bigfoot one but that's a dennis martin story where like the head and like you know they brought out like the green berets to find him and Mm -hmm. everything and like the like fbi agent in charge himself and like they saw like what they thought was a bear but then it turned out to be a man and like (laughs) You know, they ne- uh, they never found him, like, no matter what, like, they tried, and there was, like, this weird, like, uh, you know, just cover-up around it and everything, like, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember what exactly, uh, it was, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, it's actually in the same book that I've been reading from, but, uh, and there was that whole thing about, like, the wild men, like, uh, he brought it up and he said, like, you know, there's wild men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They just live off the grid. Live off you the know? grid. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that was uh, just this weird mention that took place. Yeah. You know, he says, uh, I am very interested in what happened in the meeting between FBI agent Reich and Harold Key. Was his story buffered in some way? Mr. Key's son said that he had heard and observed a bear, which was later changed mm-hmm. to his father saying that he saw a human. A bear normally walks on four feet, not two. What was the difference in the sighting that changed his description? Why wasn't the fact that the Keys saw something carrying something over his shoulder in any MPS document, any newspaper article, or any government documents ever released? Dwight McCarter confirmed he knew of this fact and he didn't know why it was never made public. It almost sounds as if Special Agent Jim Reich knew the Keys had an unusual event happen to them. So unusual they didn't want them coming to the park. He met them 20 miles away. It's obvious that the FBI and park officials never wanted this information made public, but why? The FBI still doesn't want this information released, and I believe this is why they refused my Freedom of Information Act request for documents on the Martin case. Like, but <laughs> it is odd. It, I, you know, like, obviously this guy is obsessed with Bigfoot and, like, obviously, like, has a clear Bigfoot agenda, at least as presented <laughs> by him, a lot of this stuff is odd. Yeah, the National Park thing, yeah, the, the FBI guy committing suicide, it, it's... Uh, yeah no i feel like there's something maybe going on there's all kinds of things that happen in national parks i think (laughs) you know these are vast kind of like international waters it's these kind of vast very unregulated spaces where you know i mean even in a much more like down-to-earth level i know that there's been there's always been rumblings in like far northern california up in like the emerald triangle where they grow all that weed you know like humboldt eureka and stuff like that that for example, like drug cartels will send people out into the national mm-hmm. parks to like grow weed 
and they'll like basically camp out there for a while. And so there's like a possibility that like if you're just hiking around in the wilderness, like you might stumble upon like an illegal grow operation where there's like two guys there who might have guns or whatever. So there's always been kind of things like, oh, don't you go hiking up on that mountain? You never know who you're going to run into. Yeah, but that's, that's u- right. it's usually in a more human context of like there's there's like criminal stuff going on out there and uh, people might just as easily like I don't know kill you in, instead of you know. If you, if the reaction doesn't go over very well, uh, you know, you're in a kind of dangerous situation. So, uh, it, you know, and then, of course, like the military, it's hard for me not to believe that people like the Green Beret, the Navy SEALs or groups like that maybe wouldn't use national parks as a kind of training ground uh, to some extent. I know they have their own like nature areas where they can do that, but they're always looking for the more extreme, you know, practice space, aren't they? You know, so it, and it's like they own it. The federal government owns it. So what the hell is anybody else going to say? You know, so if you if you needed to drop some Green Berets in to like, you know, do something, uh, some kind of mimic a very covert, low key mission, maybe you would use it there. So I don't know. I mean, uh, or if you were making chimeras in an underground lab underneath like the Denver airport and then you wanted to drop them into the wilderness to like psyop people, maybe a perfect mm, place to do it. Yeah. Right. Or if you were a gin, you know, like, I don't know. It's really is like kind of open ended as fuck. Like, I don't know what to say. I am sussed out by like Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I feel like maybe some Gilded Age people were doing maybe doing some money rituals or something like that. Um, and, you know, something that certainly attracted like every like uh, like sus mm-hmm. industrial rock band in like the 80s and 90s and like Hugh Hefner. So um, and like almost the Air Force Academy, which is just like, uh, I don't know. And then, of course, you know, Bigfoot High School on Devil's Lane. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. So I don't know. I don't know what's going up, uh, on up there, but I think there's little pockets of that, like all around the country. Maybe, I mean, in every well, state, there's, yeah. oh, you know, for sure. a pocket of weirdness. I feel like locals, if you ask locals Absolutely. of any place, there's always like a place that yeah. has like oh, a sus sure. reputation. There's a weird right? area. And yeah, we don't know. Uh, like uh, the Bridgewater Triangle yeah. and Mass. Yeah. And why is it? Is it is it lay is it like ley lines? Is it did somebody open a portal when they were tinkering around with spiritualism 140 years ago? Is it an Indian burial mound? You know, like is it the site of a massacre? I don't know. I mean, considering uh, th- that's a little scary thing to consider because then like how much of Europe is like haunted by everything the Nazis did, and <laughs> did they like do that on purpose? That, like, we're going to do atrocities in, like, as many places as possible just to, like, create, like, vectors of evil. Like, you know, basically. I mean, you can kind of feel it. Maybe it's just a kind of a material thing um, when you go to countries that were, like, heavily ravaged during World War II, you know, or the site of massacres. Um, you it, It's still, and you know, and arguably better preserved than, say monuments to sites where like native americans were massacred by like the u.s army or settlers uh you know those are probably literally just paved over and you know rich men came and raped the land nobody caught them they put up a bunch of ugly boxes (laughs) and jesus people bought them and now we don't even know uh i get wasn't that one of the subliminal things like that people allege beyond uh behind the shining 
I mean Kubrick's version in particular, that the entire hotel was built on an Indian burial ground, and the whole movie was kind of like mm. a psychodrama about like the ghosts of like the slaughtered Native Americans coming back to like mm-hmm. eternally haunt this place or something. I don't think that's what Stephen I King was going arguably, for. But yeah. there's like mm-hmm. a cryptic. Uh, I forget. I, I think particularly the the location of that. Yeah. What was it? The Overlook Hotel. Um, yeah, I think wasn't so. that in mm-hmm. Colorado? Yeah, I think that was definitely I, at least in the movie. Yeah, that's the clear I feel like the, the people looked you know, into uh, it through like the architecture of the hotel. In fact, I think it's yeah. based on a real hotel, you know, uh, uh-huh. which uh, did, you know, mm-hmm, which yeah, is, so. yeah, it is. Well, I mean, they filmed it there, so yeah. I, I assume that it's it's not the Overlook, mm-hmm. but it's like a hotel there um, that has. A dark history. Um, so yeah, uh, the who can really say? <laughs> who can really say? Once again, uh, the cryptids have, I think, evaded us, uh, evaded yeah. our uh, mm-hmm. our taxonomies and our uh, ontological stabs at trying to comprehend yes. them. Mm-hmm. This one, I don't know. I I'm still I will be charitable to Dogman. I I don't know. Like I I don't. Uh, yeah, I think more more than the other cryptids. It could um, just be like a bear yes. or something, you know. But still, there's like all of them. I'm well, not so sure. That's an interesting one because it exists kind of at it really exists at the intersection of Bigfoot, which you know, uh, ref- I would refer everyone to our Bigfoot episode to hear an exhaustive discussion of Bigfoot, uh, and that's only part one. There will be more, but yes. uh, there's also uh, oh, yeah. a you know aspect of like the werewolf. Uh, lore that exists there and of course like the idea of the dog the real uh, difference I guess is the idea of the wolf and the dog that like transforms this material which otherwise is kind of like Mm -hmm. poured into these different containers of uh, kind of narrative styles like whether it's like the creepypasta type style you know the cryptozoological uh, thing or you know, a different, uh, a different mm-hmm. vein, uh, and they can, you know, borrow from different, uh, aspects or various, uh, ideas circulating in any one of those domains, like the, the cryptid, the, the occult, uh, etc. For sure. Yeah. The really, the sort of the contradictions between dog and wolf, I mean, the, like the similarities and the contrast between dog and wolf are really interesting because, uh, dogs are, kind of seen as existing in a kind of like liminal uh more of a liminal space even though they're animals like they have this like social capability with humans and are like integrated you know so in a way like you would think almost like a dog man is more i mean we haven't even brought up the term wolf man but i don't <laughs> know what a man is at this point a you know what i mean like that's a whole other yeah, rabbit guess, hole yeah. but like you know but but like why wouldn't you call it a well, yeah, one thing to be a werewolf, but then I don't I don't even necessarily feel like Wolfman and Werewolf uh wasn't Wolfman like a, well, yeah, a, that like was a the Universal Studios movie, like you know, yeah, exactly. like one of those classic guys. Even oh yeah, yeah, he was the Wolfman. But the, but he effectively yeah, was a werewolf. Yeah. 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 But he right. was a werewolf in that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess they've they've ended up being blended. So, I guess, you know, the the kind of wolf thing is a little bit taken. But you would almost think like a dog would be maybe a little bit more of an appropriate animal to like plug into your cryptid because like a dog is closer to a human yeah, than a I wolf mean, is, you know, like, like it sounds like dog man is acting the way a wolf would act, not the way a dog would act. And, but then like, but then but the werewolves are kind of, I don't know, like, even though they're like a wolf, like they also are human. So they almost have some dogly characteristic of like kind of existing a little bit on both sides 
Whereas, yeah, like, I mean, what is it about dog man that makes us so uh, afraid? Like a dog is a man's best yeah. friend. Yeah. You know I, what mean, I mean, I guess like what, I mean, is a wolf a dog? In a way, like I, mean, I guess they're canines, so they're a little bit different. Well, they're yeah, they're really canines, close, but they're you know? a little they're bit different. Really they're not, they're not close. in the same whatever. Uh, yeah. But mean, then, if you want to think about it, okay, uh, taking it even weirder and deeper, is a coyote. I think a jackal is a jack. Uh, no, I think coyotes and jackals. I don't know if they can like breed with dogs, even though they're they're even they're the more same, similar to dogs they're, than, they're also canines, uh, than at wolves. Least. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're all canines. They're all canines. But if you think about it, the dog specifically is the first kind of like product of conscious breeding the first and two even animals like a, got a very created. early form man of eugenics and, and natural selection. Uh, yeah, which I mean, I don't know. There's almost like a chimeric quality to a dog itself that it's like a wolf, but not really. It's like a wolf that's been like modified to be more of an asset and be more simpatico yeah with, maybe that uh, is part humanity. of the reason i mean yeah maybe and it's the, only been more so yeah, that maybe way the idea that modernity. a dog is uh you know a product of artificial selection in that way and like artificial like controlled evolution is part of the reason for like the idea of like chimera like dog man being like a horrible chimera government killing machine beyond just like the appeal of it as a narrative yeah mm-hmm. that's what i was thinking right. exactly exactly yeah yeah exactly because a dog is like the the human's first like biological yeah. weapon <laughs> biological chimera uh True, was a dog yeah. basically you know really like, like attack dogs hunting dogs in, things like that really guard dogs you know brought up in midst of the dog man that like uh you know it's kind of uh a biased uh take to say that humans domesticated the dog because really the dog was also like an active agent in that process where human beings would be hunting and the dog, the wolves, you know, the then wolves would show up and be like, hey, you know, like, uh, let me We're help just, you. And then just sit yeah. there like, ur, ur, you know, the way dogs do, like uh, waiting for scraps and slowly, gradually yep. human beings be like, oh, I domesticated yep. you. But actually, like, you know, they helped to insinuate that relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't rob them of their agency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 they initiated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So this has been their plan all along. I'm looking at my it's dog really sleeping well, right my now. Dog like like very, I'm just thinking, my like, dog is like very. My dog very. She small, knows what she's you know? doing. So, uh, you know, I mean, of course, like uh, I had to change my entire uh, school to my entire FEC school that I follow uh, to Maliki because that's the most dog friendly one. Generally, like you know, and the slam dogs aren't. But you know, there's uh, there's some <laughs> stuff like. Uh, People uh, say greyhounds are the only dog that has baraka, but generally... Really? I don't know why. Why greyhounds? For whatever reason, greyhounds have some kind of, like, positive association with them. I think that in Midst of the Dog Man, there might be uh, some kind of uh, treatment of the greyhounds and why uh, they're, uh, consi- uh, you know, why they're uh, considered special by, by some people, but I don't know why. I don't know what the reason for that story is. According to, like, the Hadith, like, your dog really should be useful, you know? Cats are more of the, you know, the standard Muslim animal. Cats are one of the animals that live in our attendance, you know, according to the Prophet, yeah. Uh, really? Dogs usually are, like, you know, kind of... They're good if they're useful, but if they're, you know... Like, you know, there's a little bit of aversion to them. Hmm. I thought... Yeah. Mm, 
You sell that by cats. Uh, I mean, just a little, you know, just a little bit. I mean, they they definitely insinuated themselves into mm-hmm. you know humanity's lives um, by just like I don't know showing up. But they're so they're they're much more. I mean, the, maybe the dog psyops you harder by just being like, I just love you, you know. And they're well, just like that. But because cats eh, definitely, you they, know, they, figure they it out. have that sense of like wisdom. You know, one thinks of ancient egypt and like mummified cats and everything although i'm sure they're like mummified jackals and dogs as well and people are always saying like cats can like sense the spirit world or whatever although people might say the same about dogs but dogs i think you know Mm -hmm. they really are i think the reason why cats are uh considered okay in islam is because they're uh you know more or less uh equivocally than dogs is because they live in our attendance, you know, they're inside animals, you know, they might kill mice, but they're like the animals of the granary, you know, they're there to kill the mice and everything, you know, the dog, like we mm. talked about, they're on the threshold, they're guarding the house, they have one foot inside and one foot outside, and that oh. makes them, you know, that's why like, they're hunting I animals, see, they're I like see. the Bedouin animal versus they, the they are the animal, most you know, you know yeah no that's very true i mean if you think about like the most common trait of like so many dogs i know my dog is like it's like they're territorial like whatever they decide like the boundary is like the liminal border if any stranger comes beyond that border yeah. they flip out i mean and they get exactly and i mean like, my old dog uh, and that's like dog, you know I think is better be yeah. me, but my dog growing up you know, we had a black dog, uh, you know, very uh, uh, sinister in its connotations, but, uh, you know, still a pretty good boy. But he oh, yeah. definitely was much more all about being like the guard. You know, he would just like go to the window and just like yip at everything and just be like, wah, 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 at everything. Like it was just like built mm-hmm. into him that he was yeah. <laughs> a guardian you know of the house somehow like that i must guard the house like i must always be mm-hmm. pressed up against the window absolutely you know he would see like his own reflection and be like get out of here like go yeah. go be gone like other dog you know most vigilant animals when we say to stay vigilant uh nobody's more vigilant than uh, just like your average house dog uh they really take that shit seriously and i guess you know if they're defending us against like dog men and gin and like mothmen and everything maybe well, they can smell that's, like moth well, that's part of why and, they don't want to like, follow the scent they're like like like, don't go to the dog man like you don't want to find that scent like you just yeah good point maybe it's not that they can't follow it but they just don't want to they smell what that they smell what's up with that they don't want anything to do with it it's too much for them you know uh even they have to have a limit you know i mean yeah it's uh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. fascinating stuff i think uh i think we can like probably wrap yeah wrap it up there's there, a right? w- yeah um, final final a, a note final, here final uh, i found something thing. interesting uh in another uh, relatively old book about werewolves by sabine baring gould i mentioned this book i think a little bit earlier this is the guy who wrote the hymn onward christian soldiers uh he wrote this whole book about werewolves and he found uh, oh, yeah, a little yeah. sermon by uh dr johan Gieler who had given a sermon i guess in okay. the 16th century in 1510 about werewolves and basically you know he wow. doesn't actually necessarily have like a transformation idea here but uh he gave a whole sermon about it so apparently it was something that needed to be addressed and uh he says what shall we say about werewolves? For there are werewolves which run about the villages devouring men and children. As men say about them, they run about full gallop, injuring men, and they are called werewolf or werewolf. Do you ask me how, uh, do you ask me if I know aught about them? I answer, yes. They are apparently wolves which eat men and children, and that happens on seven accounts. 
uh, Isurium, hunger, Rabium, savageness, uh, Senectutem, old age, Experientiam, experience, Insanium, madness, Diabolum, devil, and Deum, god. So these are the seven reasons why wolves uh, eat children. They yes, eat people uh, for god? We'll get to that. Uh, so, you know, the first is hunger. That's <laughs> obvious enough. Okay. And the second one is when wolves eat children through their innate savageness because they are savage. And that is propter locum coitum ferum. Their savageness arises first from their condition. Wolves, which live in cold places, are smaller on that account and more savage than their wolves. Secondly, their savageness depends on the season. They are more savage about Candlemas than any other time of the year, and men must be more on their guard against them than other times. It is a proverb. He who seeks a wolf at Candlemas, a peasant on Shrove Tuesday, and a parson in Lent is a man of pluck. You know, and then also if they have young, they're more savage. Uh, like if a wild duck has little ducklings, it will be more defensive than etc. So then when a wolf is old, that's the next to uh, them, you know, they get old, uh, they might, uh, you know, well, of course, a little bit of 16th century misogyny here where uh, you see it well in old women, how the last teeth wobble and they have scarcely a tooth left in their heads and they open their mouths for men to feed them with mash and stewed substances. So just like that, an old wolf, hmm. uh, yeah, just like that, an old wolf will go after a man because it's easier to catch than a deer, you know, typical exploration, uh, explanation. Anyway, so huh. then uh, human mm -hmm. flesh is far sweeter than other flesh. So when a wolf has once tasted human flesh, he desires to taste it again. Same thing with celebrities and politicians. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, yes. uh, not new. Uh, so not under new. the fifth head, the injury arises from ignorance. That's insanium. Uh, a dog, when it is mad, is also inconsiderate and it bites any man. It does not recognize its own lord. And what is a wolf but a wild mm. dog, which is mad and inconsiderate, mm. so that it regards no man. Interesting. Uh, anyway, so under the sixth head, mm. the injury comes mm. to the devil, who transforms himself and takes on him the form of a wolf. So writes Vincentius in his Speculum Historial, uh, a, and he has taken it from Valerius Maximus in the Punic War. When the Romans fought against the men of Africa, when the captain lay asleep, there came a wolf, and he drew his sword and carried it off. That was the devil in a wolf's form. The like writes William of Paris that a wolf will kill and devour children wow. and do the greatest mischief. There was a man who had the fantasy that he himself was a wolf, and afterwards he was found lying in the wood, and he was dead out of sheer hunger. Uh, very missing 411. Uh, anyway, so this is the one about God, uh, number seven. Wow. Under the seventh head, the injury comes of God's ordinance. For God will sometimes punish certain lands and villages with wolves... So we read of Elisha, uh, that when Elisha wanted mm. to go up a mountain out of Jericho, some naughty boys made a mock of him and said, Oh, bald head, step up. Oh, gossy plate, step up. What happened? He cursed them. Then came two bears out of the desert and tore about 42 of the children. That was God's ordinance. The like we read of a prophet oh who would God. set at naught the commands he had received of God, <laughs> for he was persuaded to eat bread at the house of another. As he went home, he rode upon his ass. Then came, you know, his donkey. Then came a lion which slew him and left the ass alone. Yeah. That was God's ordinance. Therefore must man turn to God when he brings wild beasts to do him a mischief. Which same brutes may he not bring now or evermore. Amen. So, yeah, there you go. Okay, so God will well, send the dogman uh, to you know, slay you? Well, I'm just saying, you know, the new wave of dogmen... <laughs> just saying the oh, new wave of dogmen uh, since, incidentally, the time of the satanic panic, uh, killing pedos 
Killing pedos. So actually, like possibly comrade dogman. Comrade dogman. Critical man, support yeah. for dogman. I mean, yeah, that is we a have, that's a subliminal jihad exclusive. Uh, exclusive. A dogman killed a pedo yes, in Utah. Yes, we, um, we confirmed it. It's verified <laughs> uh, that it was a dogman. I mean, I guess there are also incidents. But well, maybe you know a lot of those stories when you see the dogman implicated, like the wolf or anything, it's it's actually being kind of nice, it's protecting the child. So maybe, you know, they knew that a pedo was afoot, and they were protecting them. Yeah, and they, uh, yeah, just like any any wolf mother protecting uh, its, yeah. its, its pups. Yeah, out of God. Right? Yeah, that's just the the way of nature. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's yeah, quite murky. Guess, uh, uh, watch out for know. Dog Man. If you see one, <laughs> so, don't look him in the eyes. Yeah, it's quite just murky. Don't look him in the eyes. Uh, and don't shoot him because that will only make him angry. I mean, if he decides to let you live, then he will. Otherwise, you're, you're yeah. definitely dead. Definitely. No doubt about it. You're I mean, if you look dead. him in the eyes, you might not yeah, be dead because yeah. he might just um, decide that he's toying with you. Uh, but you will experience yeah he might grin and at laugh. you uh, and give you a smile that makes you feel as if your entire family has been murdered even though they haven't and that the world is ending yeah that might happen mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I definitely i don't need any more of that i don't need any more creatures staring at me making me feel like the world is ending get enough yeah. of that on, mm-hmm. on cable news. right maybe that's what big lurch experienced uh <laughs> you know in his final moments or, you know, in his girlfriend's final moments. Uh, yeah. I mean, talk about yeah. a dog man uh, transformation that happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. it's creepy. It's creepy. So, uh, you know, stay away from, uh, watch out if you go yeah, summer in, in Lake Geneva. Park, you know. Uh, uh, if you're going to book some studio time yeah, and make an industrial metal album. Park. If you see any kind of weird uh, Sasquatch slash odd possibly bear wolf uh vague creature don't like drop your rifle and go off in search of it and then find yourself like 18 miles away because the national park service will just be like what you just walked up uh, these treacherous mountains that like are literally impossible to climb <laughs> they're just gonna say that it's absolutely yeah. not suspicious like so yeah don't uh, don't drive your atv into a ditch and then leave the engine on and then wander like three miles and then uh get killed by a dog man yeah definitely don't uh yeah don't count on the sheriffs or the park rangers definitely yeah, don't count any, on the park uh, 12 rangers year olds to listening to the show uh you know uh kids don't uh walk five miles up a sheer cliff and then just you know leave your <laughs> shoes and socks like in a neat pile and then disappear forever because you know, that will be disappointing to your parents, you know, and the kids yeah, are just liable yeah, to do that. Apparently them. it's just totally um, normal. Just yeah. To, you know, yeah. Take off their shoes and so, wander off, uh, you know, yeah. up like a mountain goat habitat. Yeah. It would be a mountain goat habitat. Well, we'll get to our goat man. Episode. I don't know if there's more beyond uh, content it than on simply, goat man. uh, <laughs> I feel like dog man's really cutting edge. Yeah. There, there are people doing occult rituals in the eighties. They summoned dog man. They summoned goat man. And, you know, just, like, watch out of, uh, watch out for Walworth County. I'm looking at the Goatman Wikipedia Um, article right now. mm -hmm. According to Maryland folklorist Barry Pearson, the Goatman legend began long, long, long ago. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, 
Well, yeah, the original <laughs> Goatman. Exactly. Yeah, very exactly. Specific, yeah. Uh, yeah. Since the yes. first Knights Templar summoned him uh, in the 13th century, or even older than that, when yeah, they were exactly. worshiping Pan in ancient Greece. Uh, of course, yeah, he's a Goatman too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, pr- it's pretty well established, everywhere. actually. I mean, the Goatman's kind of been like hiding in plain sight this whole time. He's always been around, but you yeah, know, you have to do a ritual to summon him usually. Yeah, which yeah, so we well, don't, don't do, do any that. rituals to summon Goatman, especially not. No, uh, well, we're recording this in Ramadan. I don't know if it'll be out by the time this is Ramadan. I mean, it won't work if you try to summon Goatman in Ramadan. So maybe you should do it during Ramadan, <laughs> but just don't do it at all. No, no, no. Don't even uh, try. Don't even try. Uh, yeah. yeah. If you're not, if you're not already, if you haven't taken the Shahada and you're not a Muslim, then you know, yeah, you like might not John be Brennan, you haven't taken the Shahada. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Lent is over, so you're if you're like a Christian, you're unprotected right now. This is bad mid season don't summon him uh, well it's not a piss monthly contingent uh you know (laughs) i just saw a really horrifying (laughs) like picture of the goat man uh that i guess is like a photoshop or something but it's uh it's haunting me uh it's like a black and white like trail cam mock-up photo of the goat man uh Oh my I don't God. like it. Oh it's God. really upsetting no, me. No, I don't uh, like it either. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, I don't know. All right. Yeah, I know, so... I don't know what Cryptid will do next, but that was... Uh, we got another one. Another one in the tank, in the zoo. Another one in the tank, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like they're... Well, we got to do We got to do sea serpents. I've been, I've been like, seeing some sea serpent content here and there over the months. Uh, getting Loch ready Ness, for the sea serpent episode, yeah. Once we go through it, but then we're going to come back around. You know, we're going to do Giants 2. We're going to do Bigfoot 2. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know. Exactly. Really looking forward yeah. to Dog it. Dogman 2. Um, I don't know. Maybe okay. if there's some new development. I'll be keeping my ear to the ground. I'll be having my ears my ears pricked. You know, they'll be pricked. Uh, yeah. Dogman. <laughs> Have your ears yeah. pricked. Yeah. Keep your ears pricked, everybody. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sniff, sniff those uh, random shit on the ground and like <laughs> branches and fire hydrants. Just you know, um, be relentless. Because uh, dogs yeah, are the original like conspiracy researchers in a way. I mean, they, just but they through sense of smell. Yeah, they and always sound. think there is a conspiracy afoot. Yeah, true. Uh, my dog. My like, dog is critical know, paranoid. Yeah. Is, my dog's definitely critical paranoid because like he he can't even like you know relieve himself if there's like a slight sound you know he'll be like about to yeah, pee yeah, and then he'll be dangerous. like yeah. like uh, yeah uh, he'll have this tannic panic uh because like a lottery like someone's like you know uh lottery ticket like blew across the ground like in a slight wind uh he'll be like uh, the satanic panic. appropriate reaction uh, yeah the satanic mm. appropriate reaction yeah exactly yeah. so mm. yeah um so react appropriately everyone and until next time stay vigilant peace and i just tried to chew in around the doors and you could see a dog print you know alongside the window there so it was you know obviously a dog
Elvis Logan camp in Wexford County where the Manistee River ran. Eleven lumberjacks near the Garland Swamp found an animal they thought was a dog. In a playful mood, they chased it around till it ran inside a hollow log. A logger named Johnson grabbed him a stick and poked around inside. Then the thing let out an unearthly scream and came out and stood upright. None of those men ever said very much about whatever happened then. They just packed up their belongings and left that night and were never heard from again. It was ten years later in 97 when a farmer near Buckley was found. Slumped over his plow, his heart had stopped. There were dog tracks all around. Seven years past the turn of the century, they say a crazy old widow had a dream of dogs that circled her house at night. They walked like men and screamed. darkness, a creature walks upright, and the best advice you may ever get 